0: and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. My guest today is Matt Arrett and it is such a treat to talk to him always. He does such incredibly deep uh, historical research and always brings so much nuance to the conversation, which I thought was super important for this topic today. As many of you know, this is something I've had my own kind of a lot of cognitive dissonance, should we just say, around the topic itself. So it's actually taken me quite a long time to even dive into it but I have begun. And what I found is that I was really expecting to just find the kind of mainstream narratives that I've been hearing, uh, whether that be, you know, we're going to say that the conspiracy circle is actually kind of, there is still a mainstream narrative there, right? Um, So I was really expecting just to find that. And of course, I found a lot of that, but I found almost no evidence. And that's not really all that surprising because we're talking about something that's, you know, almost a millennia ago. These are people who lived a very long time ago. And yet people seem so certain that they know so much. And I, all I was really finding was just scatterings of information and Things that really just didn't confirm any concrete kind of thesis at all. So I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. I am going live, so we will open things up for comments. I am working on this. And if you want to support me in this uh, endeavor, you can uh, buy me a coffee or... Uh, You know, I'll put up maybe my P.O. box you can support. I need to get a big monitor. So some of you may know I'm blind in one eye. I don't see all that well. So I have a really hard time like navigating comments while I'm having a conversation. Uh, But we're working on getting a big screen so that I can handle that. But we will open it up at the end. So if there are questions you're watching live and you want to be a part of the conversation, we will, you know, let you participate. So without my any further rambling from me, let's bring Matt. How are you doing today?
1: Hey Courtney, I'm good. I'm good.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, as you probably heard, this is a topic I really had a lot of cognitive dissonance around. My entire family is Jewish. Me, um, I've done, I'm Ashamed to say, but I actually did my 23andMe now that I know more, you know. But hindsight is 2020. If I had known them, what I know now, I would not have done a 23andMe and given all of my data to China. Um, but, uh, but I did. And of course, what came back is that I am like 99.996% Ashkenazi. And uh, I actually recall, I think it was a year ago at dinner, uh, someone who I don't think knew that I was Jewish was uh, proceeded to give me a 20 minute it might've been longer, lecture telling me how Ashkenazis are the spawn of Satan. I debated if I should uh, even, you know, mention that he was sitting next to such spawn. I wasn't sure he was emotionally stable, stable enough to handle it. So I I, I kept quiet, but <laughs> I was very upset by the conversation to say, the least. and I did start doing some digging and the thesis was sent- essentially that the Khazarians were connected to Tartarians, and this didn't make any sense to me. There's, you know, like a 500-year difference between the two. Um, so I wasn't really, not to say that that's not possible, but it was, you know, kind of interesting to me that he was so certain <laughs> about, you know, something that has, about people who have such a wide span of uh, time in between them, and that very few historians know much about either one, <laughs> either culture. Uh, but somehow he was very certain. And uh, it also was very baffling to me because essentially the Ashkenazis theoretically are Eastern European. And uh, the, from my understanding at the time, Kazarians are, you know, Turkic. And that didn't make any sense to me. There is no Turkic in my, uh, you know, at least in, in the showing of the DNA sample that I did. Um, but now having read your article about the Gok Turks... I, I have a different perspective on it, obviously. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, right. Um, right. but you bring a lot of nuance to this. I had no idea China was part of the equation, that the right. Silk Road was involved, Tang right. Dynasty. Um, so I, I think, yeah, let's, I don't know where you want to start okay. with it, but I think we live in a time where what I call it is pin the tail on the donkey. You know, mm. people understand, <laughs> people understand that there is something not quite right. And they want a really quick answer. They just want to pin the tail on the donkey and blame everything on one one mm-hmm. group, one mm-hmm. person, one uh, one fact, you know, or one uh, yeah one uh, data point. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I you know even as a Jew, I would say if only it were that simple. I would say hey, just eradicate us all. You know, I'm not not what I'm calling for. But Just get rid of all the evil in the world, just get rid of this tiny little population of the entire world, if it were that simple. Um, And again, I will just clarify, I'm not, that's not what I'm calling for. Um, But you know, I just don't see life that way. I don't think that life is that simple. I don't think history is that simple. And from the research that I've done, especially when you're talking about oligarchical structures, you're talking about hierarchies and uh, very intricate connected webs, and you're talking about uh, shared world views uh, that oftentimes are, uh, you know, they cloud people's decisions, actions, and, you uh, know, the course of history, but they don't, and they influence it, but they're not necessarily always working, uh, in, like, you know, but that doesn't mean that it, it doesn't look that way in hindsight,
1: but yeah. Yeah. But I don't no, know. Absolutely. Do yeah, there, there's so that? many, there's so many jump off points, obviously. Yeah. that it, It's uh, we'll, we'll just pick and choose something and we have to sort of lean into the unknown a little bit and have some faith that it's all kind of going to make sense after this journey. Um, But yeah, no, I, I that caught my eye too. Like I had, I had first encountered the concept of the the uh, the Khazarians um, through an early reading of David Icke and his Tales mm-hmm. from the Time Loop back in. Um, I guess I was just sort of starting my my conspiracy theory uh, walking legs very slowly because so I'm I'm reaching around for things and you know I was working at a at a bookstore, a big mainstream bookstore run by somebody who hosted a Bilderberger meeting um, uh, called oh, wow. Chapters Indigo. You know, big, big one of these consortiums, right? They just crushed all of the small, and medium business uh, bookstores that used to exist. They're gone now. So you get, you get these Chapters, Indigo, McDonald's things that are just everywhere. And for some reason, I was working at well, not for some reason, I was trying to get smart, so I, I didn't really have a a reading a reader identity. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll get a job here, and I, I found myself poking around the books, trying to figure things out. And there was a a section that uh, on political history, and it had a bunch of David Eit books which okay. right there should be a little bit of a red alarm. Like why does this Bilderberger <laughs> giant McDonald's book chain have like David Icke books? So I'm, I'm, I'm reading tales from the time loop. That's the one right there. Yeah. 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 And uh, the Khazarians come up uh, within the, the thesis and there's a lot of persuasive stuff, but sure. obviously there there's stuff that's also turning me off. Cause I'm, I'm reading through and being persuaded by a variety of facts about bankers conspiracies in nine 11. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get the by the way, it's shape-shifting lizards that are sucking our fear energy, and the queen's a hologram, and you're like, oh man, I can't go for this journey. So that that threw me off. But within that, the Khazarians—that was the first time I encountered the term
2: mm-hmm. of this
1: um, ancient people, this Jewish kingdom that's at the heart of all of our problems. And increasingly, at the time, not many of my friends knew about it, so I didn't have anyone to talk to. So I just kind of forgot about it for a while. And then you start engaging with the conspiracy theory world a little bit more as a writer and, and it, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting it more and more. So it's, it's, it's causing me to scratch my head a lot as well. Yeah. And, uh, it's, and, and people are, are often very persuaded by the evil of this thing that was a thousand years ago, or around eighth century to 10th century. And then there's very little records that currently exist. And as you said, you know, you encounter people who are just so persuaded. And then when you ask for, Take me through your journey of discovery, how you came to discover that this is really the center of all evil, since it is an explanatory narrative. It's a it's a it's a meta explanation of yep. everything. Totally. Yeah. So where did the why? Why are they so evil? How do we know that they're so evil? Well, like it's like Mordor. Uh, mm-hmm. You have these these orcs who you right. go to Khazaria and people would just immediately get raped, killed, turned into slaves. It's the center of slavery um why are they evil what motivates them what thoughts what how did they what what you know and there's always this shallowness whenever you yeah. try to get those kinds of questions answered um and it becomes a bit of a um a circular line of reasoning so i i found myself they're
0: heated the- and passionate but they don't have a whole lot of substantive uh remarks yeah
1: no, and I get it. You know, like there's a lot of Jewish families and bankers that have done a lot of bad, the Rothschilds and Sassoons and Montefiores. And there's a big slew of, of very influential, destructive oh, right. Jewish. I, I, al-
0: I always question, though, I mean, are these people who are really Jewish? Like, do they go to, to- do they go to synagogue? Do they read the Torah?
1: Well, that's uh, where it becomes clear to me that it's more thing. Than- <laughs>
0: <Well, laughs>
1: it seems, if anything, that if I was going to categorize them as having a religion, it would be more satanic. And in that sense, you know, you got satanic Christians and satanic Muslims and satanic Jews because they're not Jewish, Christian, Christian or Muslim. Yeah. They're they just have the names and maybe some genotype, maybe. But other than that, uh, of like somebody who's Arab or or Caucasian, whatever that, as if that's somehow Christian or you know, right. Kazarian, uh, <laughs> Eastern. Europe. But the but they're Satanists. That's what you. That's what unites them. Um, yeah. So in that sense, you have like the Gnostic. You know, you you as soon as you start seeing that there are like gnostic secret teachings of x you know like i'm a jew but there's this special rabbi that has secret teachings of the the oral moses teachings that god really gave for him to pass on to his inner initiates and then the exoteric public teachings of the old testament in genesis that's for public stupid people as soon as you have that you 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 got a problem Right yep. there, you've got the basis of mystery religions that exactly. might call themselves Jewish or Christian, but they're not. Right. Um, and you get got the same Gnostic scriptures as well for the Christians with the secret initiated, uh, secret gospel of, of Jesus that he told through, you know, Mary Magdalene to his inner initiated core that were passed on um, to Valentius and Marcius and uh, Manny, you know, who had his special Manichaean sect, which had the secret mm. Gnospels, uh Gospels. That were really also parts of just, it seems to me, satanic Mm -hmm. um, modified versions of like the cult of Mithra or the cult of Sibel or the ancient mystery cults that animated the worst degeneracy of Rome under like...
0: Which predate this Khazarian empire by a long shot.
1: Quite a long shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, this is before the days of the Jews being in Babylon, you know, and and that was like seventy years the Jews were in captivity in Babylon, and it does seem like there was some modification of some Old Testament writings during that time. And there was, it seems like, the modern like the worst interpretation of Kabbalah, the secret teachings, comes out of the Jewish experience for those seventy years in Babylon, where it took on a little more virulent form, where all of a sudden you had Jewish managers. Working right. for Pharaoh, working for some Babylonian overlord here or there in Rome, same thing. Doing some of the grunt work, money lending, but uh, but the ultimately being scapegoats. Like they're useful hate absorbers. Where you need somebody as an inner initiated, like an, an uh, one of the ruling families. You yeah. want to keep your hands as clean as possible from the destruction you're actually creating. So you want intermediaries to separate. The mafia
0: doesn't. The, the mob boss doesn't do his own. Uh killing right he, he has yeah, the hitmen doing his, his dirty work
1: exactly that's it yeah
0: i i'm curious uh before we go on because i see that when i look throughout history too that the jews do seem to be a prime scapegoat not that there aren't others throughout history but mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts on why uh they they have been used as scapegoats through so much of history
1: i got theories i don't really know exactly why right. but I, I think that it seems to me that there is something within the Abrahamic uh, monotheistic revolution mm-hmm. which overthrew the polytheistic pagan orders of governance that had managed humanity since ancient times or prehistory even, you know. this, So there's something about Judaism which rejected the pagan gods and established in some form a, a moral, reasonable concept of a creator that we're made in the image of, which mm-hmm. made us very uninclined to adapt to the types of behavior expected of us if we were going to be under a pagan multi-deity system of controls so people I think that there's been a long-standing anger um, and hostility by the oligarchy against Judaism or the, the the best quality of Judaism per se and they've been working to pervert it from within ideally or destroy it from without or a bit of both um, for a very long time.
0: Sure. Um, and I, when you say that, that's interesting. Cause it's one of the things I I've been pointing out quite a bit because a lot of people uh, I'm seeing very much a kind of revival of this, uh, enlightenment versus counter enlightenment type of movement resurrecting. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been seeing that, but I I'm very much seeing it. Uh, mm-hmm. and I do think it's an attempt to subvert the American United States constitution. I think that's the yeah. purpose of that dialectic. Yeah. Um, you, you feel that as well
1: I, I concur
0: you concur okay <laughs> um, yeah so I I'm seeing that and uh, I but the thing I've been pointing out to people because a lot of people are arguing well you know the the moral underpinnings of the of the United States and the West in general are uh, Christian uh morals and You know, they keep telling me that Judeo-Christian is not a thing and that that's only a geopolitical construct. Now, I'm not arguing that it's never been used as a geopolitical pawn. I I do think it has. But to say that it is solely a geopolitical construct, I'm like, where are those moral underpinnings uh, originating? Was it not the Ten Commandments, which come out of the Old Testament the last time I checked?
1: Yeah, like... Exactly. No, it's a thing. No, Judeo Christianity is a thing, <laughs> it's, it's I, just, a lot it's
0: like of people will tell you not that it's not.
1: So, <laughs> Timothy Leary and Aldous Huxley. I mean, Timothy Leary in his autobiography had a, recounted a discussion he had with Aldous Huxley in 1960, when uh, as as both of them were working for the CIA MKUltra program to mass initiate an entire generation of baby boomers into a death cult, effectively. a yep. new not, and where uh, Aldous Huxley is describing how. It is the Judeo Christian idea of human nature, which is the enemy that we must destroy by bringing the time is right for a new scientific paganism. Yep. That's exactly what they're talking about with the mind drugs. I mean, the whole point of bringing in psilocybin, LSD 25, DMT, it all came. It's not like freedom drugs that are like all of a sudden that the oligarchy didn't want us to have all this time. This stuff came out of the MK, like Tavistock, MK Ultra CIA operations that refined it, brought it into our world. Yeah, right there. Yep. <laughs> yeah, good. Doors of perception, of, yeah. That's, yeah, that's the Bible of the, of the mind drug uh, new religion. And so it, it was targeting an entire generation to try to drive all of these kids born after World War II into a form of controlled um, schizophrenia. Yeah. That was part of the idea and, and get a break. Uh, the, the idea was to get a, a break in the continuity of human civilization that went back thousands of years, By getting a whole generation to reject the values of family, God, uh, nationalism, and just live in the moment, live in the now, Uh, stop trying to seek and understand the external world or make it better. Every time we try, that makes it worse. Just try to make your, your, seek out, become an inner astronaut of your brain by using more brain drugs and just live in the now. Forget your kids, forget your grandparents, forget their sacrifices that they made for you. Forget your responsibility to your unborn children. Just live in the now, be happy now. And this became a mantra as people were yeah. being driven kind of nuts with the Vietnam yeah. Wars, murders of their presidents, Martin Luther King. Like, it was a lot to, for a, admittedly young, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds to take in.
2: They were yeah. subjected
1: to a lot of crap, you know. And then you have Timothy Leary uh, providing them a gospel on, on freedom, which ultimately Leary admits, you know, the CIA was the best thing in the world and he's a CIA agent. You know, like, he's he's admitting that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah um working so, with the
0: Grateful Dead and uh you know of course oh the, then you got the, the whole
1: thing and yeah you're like oh every single major influential musical force that I love turned I know to have been <laughs> military industrial complex creations of MKUltra uh, oh yeah like, oh well Christ you know <laughs> so obviously I, there's a really funny
0: story to- about that I was at yeah. a at a you, you know Jay Dyer he actually gave me a copy of this book um, and he asked me what music I like to listen to. I'm like, Oh, you know, like CIA music. He's like, is there anything that's not <laughs> like, <laughs> like, fair enough? Yeah. They, they they did all the good stuff anyway, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I would add to what you were saying about the uh, you know, the LSD, this uh, the psychedelics that the other thing that it did uh, is that it creates this illusion of the oneness and uh, you know, because it strips down boundaries. And yeah. I think that that's why it was so uh, useful and effective for reviving things like uh, the new the new age movement and oh, yes, yeah. you know, yeah, which is a gateway to these types of uh, mystery yeah. cults.
1: Yeah, well, because part of the new age initiation of the theosophists and, and various, I mean, pretty much it seems to me in evaluating these different mystery cults that transmogrified or rebranded over the centuries is that the common theme amongst the mystery occult because I mean it's the point of you have you have gates rites, degrees of initiation that you have to go through in a controlled way each one has different flavors slightly different variants of rituals but ultimately the same effect it's all about the effect and by the time you pass through the seventh or eighth gate maybe ninth gate like the I made a movie about that with Roman Polanski but uh <laughs> By the end of the day, the the big discovery you're supposed to experience is you are God, that the God you thought existed from the Bible or the Quran or the Torah, that's actually the evil demiurge that created the yep. world evil in the in the, the image of the evil that created it and we're all thus evil and our minds are evil and everything is evil unless you have gnostic special experience known only for the inner elites because you went through this whole like cleansing process of purging yourself of the body, blah blah blah. And by the end, you're, the big discovery is, no, you are God. And right. so it, it hyper atomizes and, and amplifies the ego of the individual to think that they that. And it's true, like we it's like a perversion of a, of a truth, because like, right. as far as I can see in, in, the, in the type of Christianity that moves me and, and inspires me, um, it, it's based on a recognition that we're made in the image of a living, loving, reasonable creator. We have an immortal soul. We have a divine spark. All of us. That's why life is sacred for right. humans, especially. And it's not OK to eat a human baby, but it's OK to eat a chicken or a, an egg. That's different. You can't yeah. it doesn't weigh on the same scales as a human baby, but right. they're both like living material. But why? Right. So it's there's something about the human baby that has a sacredness that you don't eat the baby. Um, right. So they take that, they pervert it and then they cut it off of the what makes this beautiful, viable truth. And they just say, oh, no, we are all personally, individually God. That's what the theosophists all wanted people to initiate or the initiates to believe, because not Mm -hmm. everyone can at least everyone can can become an egotistical God complex, prideful person. Right. But not everyone can, practically speaking, play the part. So you have to have only a minority of real inner initiates who really know that they're gods like the Aleister Crowley's or the whatever, the L. Ron Hubbard's who believe that they are Satan or Demi, whatever that is. That is yeah. <laughs> and, and they're the ones with the power to impose their will over the many who don't have power. But the, the baby boomers were put through this like low level di- diluted form of initiation process to become. they were um, This is you know,
0: Lucius trust. So, that uh, you're, uh, that's, that's what you're looking at. Yeah.
1: The, the current website with the animation animated
0: star. Actually the trust, the, I did a whole show on this. Actually it, this is actually from the Lucius trust uh, website. And they talk about how they are the uh, consultancy for the U.N. It's the World Goodwill Newsletter. Um, and, of course, they, they talk about Alice Bailey and how she was, uh, you know, Lucifer Publishing. And then it became Lucius Truth. And yes. uh, they talk about the uh, World Federation of a World – they have a festival week, sorry, of a world mm-hmm. servers and okay. it's every seven years because that's what the Ascended Master came to her and told her he would visit every seven years. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the Group of the World cool. Servers, the World Goodwill at the UN. They they openly admit they're a direct consultancy, so they're essentially like the spiritual underpinning, uh, guiding the UN. Uh, there's the Arcane yeah. School, There's uh, and these were all, uh, you know, brainchilds of uh, Alice Bailey.
1: Yeah, and her teacher, Annie Besant, and... <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, actually you know it, as you're as you were doing that, I realized that I was I listened to your your presentation on. Oh, you did. This. <laughs> yeah, I was in the car and, and stuck in second traffic. It was good. Um, no, that's right. And and people don't realize just how present this is. Um, but so I guess this does weave into the Kazarian discussion a little bit because it's yeah. it's like where do we place our our understanding of the causal nexus shaping history, yeah. and do we place it since history is shaped. As a dynamic, nonlinear process, but it's still organized by principles. Sure. Um. Not every not every mechanism is causal, though. Sometimes we could mistake, like, when asking, like, what's causing the car to run, we could make the mistake of thinking, well, every time the car turns on, the muffler goes, so thus the muffler must be the cause of the car moving. And it's like, well, that's not exactly it's it. You can mistake. Like yeah. So, <laughs> oftentimes, when uh, oligarchy grows, you see um, bankers who are of a Jewish. Uh, name doing bad things to to enslave or do economic warfare against people so do you say that thus that uh banking dynasty is the cause of the of the problem or are they part of a higher machinery that is putting them into motion out of which they might be obedient to right and i think that this is where um, the Khazarians—it it becomes more useful because before Khazaria only existed as uh, a state about a century before it converts to Judaism.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: in my essay, I go at you know how it, this was the 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 easternmost, um, sorry, westernmost uh, part of the Göktürk mm-hmm. Empire that had sort of come to its, its biggest point of 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 influence, stretching right. all the way from the Pacific and, and a lot of China northern mm-hmm. China, all the way down through much of the Middle East, all the way up through what's today most of Russia, all the way down to, like, Eastern Europe.
2: Right. Um, all the way to, like,
1: well, at the very least, Ukraine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the Göktürk Empire, Empire, it happened at a moment when uh, China was in a dark age. The the Chinese had collapsed civilizationally back in, like, 200 AD. And so the 400-year-long uh, Silk Road policy that had been re- created by uh, the leadership of the new Han dynasty in 200 BC. I couldn't
0: believe it was that long ago. Yeah. oh, That was fascinating to see that that was the first uh, Silk Road. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it probably has some connection that still has to be discovered to some of what Alexander the Great had done by Mm -hmm. overturning the plans of the Persian empire to create sort of a Western Eastern Persian empire branch under his father, Philip of Macedon. And that was disrupted. and, and, Alexander had a very different vision. He basically undermined, undid the Persian Empire, and extended um, trade corridors, culture. I mean, there's buildings of, that utilize Hellenistic uh, building principles and architecture yeah. all the way into India and Afghanistan today. It was called Bactria or Gandhara, yeah. the easternmost kingdom that stretches all the way up into like uh, uh, India, almost almost to China. So there's some connection to that about a century before the uh, the Silk Road was created
2: right and then
1: that created this communion of relationships that made it a lot more difficult in many ways to get divide to conquer wars when people right. were like having trade with their 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 neighbors all mm-hmm. of a sudden they were learning other languages made it a lot more hard to like alien um create monster images out of your neighbors as your enemy so because you had understanding right um so, and you also you, had
0: you, mutual uh, benefit, you had a symbiotic yeah. relationship, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: There was like, yeah, better if you don't die. That, that, yeah, I also exactly, so yeah, all of that <laughs> was somewhat disruptive to the oligarchical modality, which always requires some um central command force. In that case, it happened to be the Roman Empire that was selected as the base of operations for the, the new Persian Empire that had sort of moved and migrated the mystery cults from Persia into Rome. Um, it also required Rome Trent letting go of its Republican sort of um, values, um, right. which was part of what the the there was like a sort of Vietnam War decay process in the case of Rome before right. it became a, an empire. This is important yeah. to the story of Picaria. Um, yeah, and that was called the the, the 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 wars against Carthage, the 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 three Punic Wars, mm-hmm. two hundred and fifty years before the first Punic War. Carthage and Rome had a strategic alliance. They always worked together, fought together against the Persian Empire infiltration, not just militarily, but also the the mind infiltration. You had the sophists mm-hmm. that were deployed. They did a good, a very effective job at destroying uh, Greece from within, introducing uh, the arts of rhetoric and sophistry that... that They're hard minds. at work
0: today, too. Yeah. Oh,
1: super hard at work, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they had been working hard to do the same thing to, ro- to ro- uh, Rome and Carthage. Yeah. And it was only at, It was only at a certain moment that Rome embraced stupidity and corruption and backstabbed their ally in Carthage and started the, these wars. They they canceled their their alliance with Carthage and they and the first war was was Rome got bigger. Um, the second war was really bad, and that's when things like the uh, the cult of Cybele were brought in as a as a, a sanctioned core cult of Rome. Um, that's a big okay. part of the Gaia cult. Cybele is effectively Gaia. It's also Demeter oh. is the cult of uh, Eleusis. So De- Cybele and Demeter and Eleusis and Isis are the same deity. effectively. Okay. It's the harvest deity that is also tied to certain psychedelic rituals that were done to initiate. So
0: the, Gaia means earth, right? So it's like the yes, earth. Earth Mother, mother, mother. worship. Mother, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's known as a Magna, uh, a, a magna uh, Mater, uh, a great mother, earth mother cult. Okay. So, yeah, um, a lot of their rituals often happen in caverns. That's also why they interface with the cult of Mithra, or oh. Mithras. But it was still uh, Turkic, and it had a sort of Phrygian pathway into Rome as well. Later on, they always interface together. Interesting. Um, it's kind of like what the Fabian Society and the Round Table are. If you want to understand how the those two cults, they're they're animated by the Mithra, sibel relationship, okay. um, in our modern age. So, all that to say. This is Rome began going uh batshit crazy. Um they began to really lose their moral marbles. Uh they were still holding on to some republican values a little bit, but it was getting weak. Uh and it really got bad when they when they totally annihilated Carthage, and this is like 146 BC or so. That's when like Carthage uh, Carthage Delenda est, you know, and every single man above the age of 16 was killed. Every single woman was brought into slavery. The kids were, and they just raised it to the ground. No more sign of Carthage, And then Rome became the empire, you know, that, that we know of it as
2: right. around
1: that time. And it took another, another 80 or so years for it to officially become legally an empire. They had to kill Cicero, who was sort of the Socrates of, of Rome. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that went to shit. And so around the time that they were, they were going empire mode, um, China also was, was slipping and slipping. They ended up collapsing. The Silk Road, by the by, around 200 BC, collapsed into into disarray. Rome held on a little bit more, but nobody. It, it kind of you couldn't have a Silk Road process is when you had this unipolar hegemon of Rome with its mystery cults trying to take over the world. It couldn't really work. So that ended up going its course, and and Rome collapsed under its own self contradictions and banking insanity and just it, its own immorality it couldn't sustain itself so it collapsed um so you had a total generalized dark age around much of the world there were little blips of light here and there in china a little bit blips, blips of light in rome and in byzantium but little blips they weren't very powerful uh, the oligarchy was having a field day of depopulation um and so the silk road disappeared the gokturk empire ended up Sorry, yeah, go on.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, but I I just want to, before we go further, because uh, you mentioned the oligarchy. um, And I think that that's not necessarily very clear to everyone. Like, who do you mean by that? Which families or what structures make that up, especially at this time period?
1: I'm referring to it principally in my mind culturally, um, because the oligarchy has its own internal culture, but it's also Mm -hmm. a, a Tied to certain bloodlines, yeah. So there's a limited array of families Mm -hmm. um, that, from my understanding, Mm -hmm. um, seem to be um, very inbred, that are tied to a lot of the Roman emperor so even now you have some leading italian families who are behind the scenes but they're still known um, who were part of the the roman patrician families some of them can trace their genealogy to a few of the emperors Mm -hmm. Um, probably goes back before that i think there was probably a continuity between the roman families and some of the uh persian families and and babylonian families that Mm -hmm. some of them probably backstabbed each other disappeared other ones uh you know, became more dominant, but I think that there is a continuity of some of these bloodlines that they see as their bloodline being sacred because they're elitists who believe that they're God, and somehow their 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 right to control somehow flows through their blood into their 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 progeny. Um, so you've got also these, there's sort of like this cult of of property that. Also, tra- allows for the continuity of these families, so they're born into these trusts, these fondies, with prop- like castles and properties yeah. around the, you know, managed by committees mm-hmm. that govern and ensure some continuity of, of those old families. That's how I think of of the dominant oligarchy. Then you have sub-oligarchies, sure. sure. like you know, little mini dynastic families, like I'd say the Rothschilds or the Sassoons. Like some of these,
2: mm-hmm. these
1: are lower level sociopaths who are assigned to do jobs they do it well and they're granted they take risks and they're sure. thus granted uh, a, a, no, a title of nobility which mm-hmm. gives their kids and grandkids a, a sort of limited dyna- dynastic mercenary privilege mm-hmm. the Bronfmans being sort of a new in- initiated family into the thing mm-hmm. but right. ultimately they're still kind of disposable at the end of the day They're they're not like as guaranteed you don't have as much security as <laughs> higher up would have, you know.
0: Sure, I mean, right? They're 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 more uh, like the hired hands, if you will. Uh, they're, yeah. they're like the VPs, maybe of a big corporation. Yeah, uh, they didn't write <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Uh, um, who? Do you have any thoughts on who these families are? Like, like Orsini's, like Medici's, are names I've you know heard. Yeah, definitely um,
1: Orsini's, huge. Yeah, um, I would think so too. I like I I always you can. There's a limited amount of availability where you can know. Hey, there you go. There's a bunch yeah. of very influential families that are still active. Um, yeah. Yeah, and there's some there's some good literature that's oh, yeah, that some researchers have put together. The Shiggy Foundation is actually one of the most influential cultural warfare foundations run by the Chigi family in Venice. Um, some of them can trace their their family lineages to a few of the doges of venice that ran the world for a few hundred mm-hmm. years before the empire moved to to take over and and, and use uh, the british isles as their new base of operation right So you've got these like migrations every time the oligarchy like a parasite um
0: i call them parasite class too <laughs> yeah
1: when they do what they do and they kill their host they don't necessarily uh it's not necessarily to their own advantage that the parasite like parasites in nature know that you don't kill your host. You, ca- you got to sure. keep it alive, right? They're yeah. not that. They're not as smart as the parasites of nature because they end up killing their host. Then things get very insecure for them. They go into a bit of a crisis. Then they have to like rebrand themselves. You know, migrate to some other place to reconstitute their parasitical operations. And that's sort their of what happens.
0: Supersedes their survival mechanisms.
1: Yeah, they got just yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so it's what they do. Anyway, yeah, so that's what happened when Rome when okay. Rome went into a bit of a death spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, and St. Augustine, if people want to understand it, I mean, I really recommend reading um, St. Augustine's City of God as okay. like a real diagnostic of why Rome collapsed. It's a really great, not just a study of of the history, a thousand years before Rome became Rome, that Augustine was living in in the early 5th century, but he's also diagnosing, diagnosing the fake Pseudo Christian cults, the Donatists, the phalagians, the there's all of these like splintering sub pseudo Christian synthetic cults that were trying to contaminate and destroy Christianity from within. That he was battling on every level. Um,
0: so many and, today, so I think they study that that playbook very hard.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, exactly, it's, it's it's a really good book for people to, to just read okay. and step into some universal history, because it's the same fight like you just said today, and he, he writes a lot of his, his works as a, a Platonist, because he's a Platonist, he, mm-hmm. he has like eight chapters, or not eight, but he has like three chapters on Plato, okay. um, he writes a lot of his work in the form of platonic dialogues too, which are okay. wonderful, his free choice yeah. of the will is a wonderful platonic dialogue on, you know, the nature of good and evil, what is it? Um, super potent super potent mind exercises so right. but he's part of this um, this like really powerful moral Christian movement that is fighting against the mystery cults and doing a pretty good job he's also working with uh, like-minded people in uh, in Ireland like some of his uh, his followers go on to play a big role in the Irish monastery movement that helps. Keep Christianity alive as the as the Western Roman Empire is being sort of taken over by the Ostrogoths and Visigoths and all these different pagan Nordic you know chieftain sects. They're all sort of dominating and taking control of, of Rome as it Balkanizes and Christianity is being diluted, being undermined. Um, and so the Irish monastery movement. Thomas Cahill wrote a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization, which is a decent decent book, very re- very easy to read going through yeah. a bit of that of the role of, of St. Patrick and then the later St. Columba Columbus, who uh, creates an incubator of, of teaching orphans, building beautiful artwork, really cultivating the craft so that you can have your your moral ivory tower theology balance mm-hmm. out with like real world value um, mm-hmm. by, by being a creative, productive uh, Sounds citizen. Sounds like
0: a beauty aspiration.
1: Yeah, and all of this is important to have the context of what became in two centuries later Khazaria, because in it, is it, it it I think around the uh, as I was mentioning the yeah around five eighty or so, that's Thomas Cahill's book. Anybody okay. could just write that down, read that book, fun read, great great bedtime reading, super good. Um, right. And then that that then created a a platform around 590 around which Christianity could be strengthened enough and kept alive long enough to then be sent back to um, re-evangelize the corrupt pagan Mm -hmm. mainland Europe, which had gone stupid. And they were working really closely with one later on, a a particularly useful um, receptive grouping around the Franks that became um, Charles Martel who was a, a mayor under the Merovingians, but he ended up throwing a bit of a coup and he brought mm-hmm. in the Augustinian advisors from a lot of them were from Ireland uh, to advise him as he overthrew the Merovingians <laughs> and established uh, a dynasty with his kids, Pepin and later Charlemagne and Charlemagne's mm-hmm. kids, Louis uh, the Bald or something. Um, as as a, a new dynasty, the Carolingians, um, the Merovingians never forgave him for that they were they were one of these gnostic christian cults uh so yes charles martel right Mm -hmm. there so he had a lot Um, of these these augustinian advisors
0: i have a question about augustine because in your uh, when i was reading your article which is fantastic i'll definitely post a link to your Substack. and you've been quite busy very prolific i can't keep up but you're doing great work so thank you (laughs) um but i i thought it was fascinating that he i i mean i just I'm, I'm ignorant of him I didn't realize he had uh preserve uh, he had said that the Jews needed to be protected there were some sources I went and did a little bit of research on him that said he they said for the Jews to be protected but never to rise and I, is that true or is that well, like yeah
1: all about the the context so
0: yeah I yeah the, I agree the Jews,
1: there's a lot of hate a lot of a lot of anti-jew hate that was going on uh, in in Augustine's time, and it's 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 it made sense because Rome was in an is in a crisis collapse mode, right? Like right. the first wave of of sackings had happened in 400. Another wave was about to totally finish Rome off as a Western Roman Empire in 450. And so people are going to crisis mode, they're panicking, they're looking for an enemy image, kind of like every single moment we have a crisis and the Jews are always there is like perfect. Like you got the Jews.
0: Uh, <laughs> oh wait, I know it's the Jews. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so, you know, there were a lot of, um, lynch mobs, a lot of, lot of towns that were, that had Jewish, uh, a lot of Jewish people living in them that were like raised to the ground. It was, it was getting ugly. And, um, and so Augustine had to come up with some way to bring people back to their senses. And mm-hmm. he introduced what was known as the doctrine of witness. He was a lawyer. He mm-hmm. was originally a, a Manichaean, and he, he was part of uh, the Manichaean sects. And he broke away through the the help of Saint Jerome, who who organized him out of that. Um, and he was a force. Like Augustine was a force of nature. I, I, yeah. I'm convinced that that Christianity would have been destroyed were it not for this guy's work uh, as a, as this this mega organizer. So so he came up with this very persuasive legal argument called the doctrine of witness yeah and that basically said no the jews existing gives value to the faith of christianity because jesus was born into a jewish world he was a jew mm-hmm. and by them existing it, it gives more validity to christ's having risen and died for our sins and then the whole the whole principle of the the nicene creed and it was it was good i mean it, it used for a modern ear that's used to politically correct language, it's right. it's distasteful because mm-hmm. he's he you know, he speaks of the Jews as lesser than Christians, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Nice. But
1: what he's doing is saving millions of Jewish lives and right. helping Christians get their, their wits together to stop mm-hmm. acting like like brute idiots.
2: Um
1: <laughs> So, and this is later on, his work is is later on adopted by the Islamic, when when Islam is created a century and a half later, uh, the Islamic scholars from both the Umayyad and Abbasid dynasties are studying Augustine's logic, because there's a lot of effort by the oligarchy to inflame passions to get um, Jew killing Christian, killing Muslim, and Muslim killing Jew killing Christian, Christian killing Muslim. They've been, they were always trying to get this clash of civilizations, these forever wars going Right. Uh, for a long time and the the Islamic scholars were studying Augustine and they came up at the time in around the uh 680 or 700 period with the uh the 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 the, the principle of dinne which essentially is the same thing that that mm-hmm. we that it's the mandate of the the of Muslims to protect the Jews living on Muslim lands not kill them um and that that whole thing was was very very important psychologically to break from these these uh, forever wars which eventually ended up getting finally underway with the crusades with the te- managed by the templars and these mystery orders of gnostics later on so it took them a while mm-hmm. so the whole story of like kazaria yes was being shaped by this environment right and and so kazaria was first turkic but they were very influenced by china as well because the the gokturk empire went all the way from china all the way to ukraine and, and what's the difference
0: uh, between gokturk and turkic
1: it seems like it's uh, just a. There's a a, a a one. It seems like the same thing. Honestly, it seems yeah,
0: like. I I tried finding I, the distinction. I couldn't, so I thought maybe okay. I had a
1: bit of difficulty too. Obviously. Okay. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. Uh, yeah, and, and, I don't uh, know if
0: I missed something, but yeah, go on.
1: Sorry. No, no, you didn't. Um, I don't think you did. Um, but but so, the uh, there was a battle with um the tang so the tang dynasty was the first confucian sort of revival after 400 years of dark age in china right mm-hmm. between 200 and around 600 and something that, so there was, there was a dark age population collapse like it happens in every dark age silk road kind of disappears but the gokturk creating the first sort of system it's it's a confederation of khagans managing sort of local regions all the way from east to west there was a little bit of a revival of the silk road trade routes because of that and it was very very multi ethnic um, but there was also some conflicts with the new Tang dynasty that got in a bit of a war, a big war with, with the Gokturks. They had the, the Tangs won. And when they defeated the Eastern parts of the Gokturk empire, it left a very independent Western faction, which is today's Ukraine, you know, Western Russia. That was, it became the Khazarian uh, kingdom. Right. And it took them another century. They, they were very highly like there's scholars who go through what is known of the Göktürk uh, worldview that was very influenced by Chinese Confucianism. The idea of the Mandate of Heaven being a big one that 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 a ruler is only has the right to rule if their laws that they create are in harmony with the laws of of heaven of God, and if they abrogate those uh, those. That 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 uh, responsibility. It is the mandate of the people to overthrow said ruler to institute new government that's more befitting of, of the mandate of heaven. Uh, it's called Tianmin. Um, it's it's big in Mencius's writings and Confucius's writings. So anyway, that was a big part of the 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 Kagan or the the the, the Khazarian worldview pre-conversion of Judaism. And we don't know all the details exactly, but around four uh, seven forty-five seven fifty or so. There was a conversion of the kingdom, not a forced I, conversion.
0: This but, was interesting because uh, in the research that I started diving into, and this was one of the big red flags to me about yeah. people being so certain because I found some historians were saying that the conversion was in 840 and then others were saying 739. That's a century in between. Yeah. I, I recognize in the scheme of history, it's not you know that big a, a difference of time, but it's but it is. Significant. I mean,
1: most it's people significant. don't live
0: longer than 100 years. So, you know.
1: No, no, yeah. it's significant. Um, yeah. I'm, the sources I'm seeing and I, I think that there we don't have a lot of direct sources from Khazaria. So if people try yeah. to read like, well, what writings or history books were written by the Khazar, Khazars, you don't have them. They were mm-hmm. they were wiped out. So what we do have are secondary sources of. Geographers, mostly from the the Muslim world, like Al Masudi, mm-hmm. who wrote the Meadows of Gold in around nine hundred and a bit, um, who did write extensively about the the Khazars that survived. Uh, there's Abu al Ishtakari, who's another mm-hmm. uh, Arab um, scholar of around that same time who also wrote about them, and, and especially the 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 role of the Jewish diplomats and Radonite traders, who were Jewish uh, traders uh-huh. that worked with the uh, Abbasid as well as the Carolingian. Um, kingdoms Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so they wrote about that so you have indirect work you have some stuff as well from like the Cairo Geniza scrolls it's like thousands Mm -hmm. of these scrolls that they found in some ancient synagogue that Mm -hmm. somebody only had the wits to like look in the the attic of the synagogue like a few years ago and they're like oh shit there's like a hundred thousand of these scrolls (laughs) and and things that um a lot of them were from Kazaria oh that's the Radonite yeah so the Radonite Trade cord. the Radnites uh, were primarily uh, very cultured Jewish traders
2: who okay. managed the
1: Silk Road trade routes
2: um,
1: that had been revived with the Tang Dynasty. So, as the Tang Dynasty revived, reestablished a Confucian governing ethos in China, it helped to um, unify the kingdom. Whereas before that, it was like the Western Roman Empire, right? All mainland China, just like Western Rome, was all like schismed and balkanized and fighting each other with little warlords and shit. So right. that, that was sort of done there, and they revived the the trade routes. And so the Jews had this, or the, specifically the, these networks of Baghdad Jews that were Radonites, Rada, that's at least the best thesis I could or theory I could find of them, um, okay. is that they spoke, they were known for speaking upwards of like 10 languages. They could speak Chinese, they could speak Arab, they could speak English or whatever Proto-English was. They could <laughs> right, speak a bunch of things. Um, so very, very um, interesting people. And um, that created an environment around which the Abbasid, so around 680 is where you have Charlemagne beginning to take power from, you know, and and Charlemagne has reestablished a unified Christian kingdom for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, all these little subcults have been now... Uh, taken over, and now you have the Augustinian Platonists who are advising Charlemagne, like people like Alcuin, who is top advisor, his Eminence mm-hmm. is uh, organizing internal improvements. So, this is where you have a giant spike. It's called the actual Carolingian Renaissance because you have a spike in longevity, quality of population, um, literacy, the teaching of mm-hmm. orphans, like the Irish monastery movement is now becoming the normalized practice across mainland Europe. Uh, Mm -hmm. building these beautiful monasteries that encourage people to do work not just like worship a priest but actually do work and they're transcribing ancient texts that's the carolinian yeah wikipedia entry um and they're looking also for avoiding wars with islam so the the ultramont you have a faction of the of the occultists Mm -hmm. that had taken control pretty solidly of rome and so the, the Pope, Stephen III, is a dominant Pope, very, very disrupt, disruptive figure, who, who sees the papacy. They have the view that the papacy is not simply something to uh, deal with the spiritual domain, but that, rather something to deal with both the spiritual and should control the material domain at the same time as a demigod. Kind of like the Roman Empire The you know the, the, was, was, was that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, after, it was the, the cult of the Roman Empire, emperor of, C, of the Caesar. So that's how they wanted the Pope to be as well. Sure. Um, useful way to organize society for an empire. And they were always trying to get uh, Charlemagne to go to war with the, the, the Muslims and take back the Holy Land. Um, it, there was always this idea of rebuilding Solomon's Temple as well that had been destroyed, you know, in, around the yeah. 78 AD period with the Jewish-Roman War. Right. Um, so there was this, this fanatic, weird eschatology that started creeping up around, you know, purging the land of the heathens, Rebuilding, figuring out where Solomon's Temple is, rebuilding it, and ushering in some end times thing that that already was being pushed back then around. We're talking here like seven, eighty, seven, ninety. Okay. Um, and Charlemagne had a big headache because he's like both—he's a Christian, uh uh-huh. so he's trying to like be very respectful to the Pope, but at the same time, he's a diplomat, statesman, and he's like, no, I'm not going to just go in and create a bloodbath either. And right. I can get along with the Abbas of Harun al-Rashid, al-Mamun, his son. So you've got this in what's called in the Muslim world the Abbasids, who kick out the Umayyads. The Umayyads go to southern Spain, um, mm-hmm. and the Abbasids become sort of the, the dominant force for many, many centuries. They they have around the same time the 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 Abbasid Renaissance. The 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 it's it's a period of of building of beautiful architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, the what's called houses of wisdom are, are growing up they're kind of like platonic academies built up all around Baghdad where you have Jews and Christians and Muslims and Chinese and Indians all venturing to like work on astronomy together um, There's beautiful paintings of this and tapestries of of these things so it's this really like creative bustling goodness which is happening and Charlemagne, um, is always using Jewish diplomats as envoys. Yeah, it's the Houses of Wisdom. So you can scroll down and, and see a picture of one of these tapestries or paintings. Wow. There are different Arabic scholars working on geometry and astronomy together. They're doing poetry and paintings together. um And again, they're bringing. They're working with Islamic, uh, with Jewish and Christian scholars too. Really beautiful stuff. That's al Moon, who's a really great leader they're working on diplomatic win-win cooperation. So they're always trying to figure out how can we avoid war that's being set for us as traps. Right. One of the big ones.
0: And were they aware that, you know, there was kind of an oligarchical structure that was setting them up to fight each other?
1: Yeah. 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 They're very aware of that. Yeah. Conspiracy theorizing is not a new thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think that. But.
1: Uh, Yeah. But. Um, But it's amazing.
0: I actually, sorry to interject here, but I think this is an important point. I actually feel like as time has gone on, we've become more susceptible to the traps. I feel like in uh, previous generations, they were more aware that these traps would be laid out for them. And, you know, not to say, obviously, hmm. we've we've had tremendous war, so people have fallen for it. But I, I do feel like that's just one of the things that comes up for me is that, Uh, You know, even just when I look at the founding of the United States, I feel like there was such a warning because they had just watched uh, Mm -hmm. the French Revolution. You know, they they watched the infiltration of the Illuminati into the masonry. And I feel like there were not to say that people didn't fall. Obviously, (laughs) we'll look at where we are today. (laughs) History would be very different if we hadn't fallen for it Mm -hmm. uh, for so many of the traps laid before us. But I feel like there was just more of a sense of, you know, this there is some sort of a structure that is trying to control us. And that we we should avoid it. And I feel like that's been it's disintegrated through time, and that's why we're more and more vulnerable. I don't know what your thoughts you know, are. No, I
1: think you're you're right. I, I I mean, there's moments where we got we've been better and worse, uh, but certainly we were a lot better at different points in the past that we under we undervalue um, the wits that people had. Um, and yeah, like this is a great example of what we, lessons we could be and should be learning from today if we were a little bit brighter on this issue of history um, because yeah like how did, this is one of the most beautiful examples I could see is that like how did Charlemagne avoid this this war to, you know it eventually became the first crusade like three centuries later but they wanted that in 800 and so he did it through his again Jewish uh, diplomatic envoys that he sent down it was always Jew, Jews that were the diplomats selected by the Muslim or Christian um, rulers that brokered a deal with um, Harun al-Rashid saying, okay, look, uh, we got this danger of war to take the Holy Land. Uh, What can we do? And they started over the course of like a few years brokering this deal, whereby Mm -hmm. Harun al-Rashid said, okay, here's the solution. I'm going to give you a deed to take back to Charlemagne he'll mm-hmm. own the holy land and he with silks and he gave, he sent like an elephant as well as big giant elephant back to to uh, the center of uh, Aachen who is the center, the capital of the Carolingian empire. And, he's, and basically he said, okay look, you'll own it and we will guard it. And that way no need to fight. And you have an elephant. And Charlemagne loved the elephant he rode the elephant for like 20 years, named it I forgot the name, but he loved this elephant. So you mm-hmm. got this Christian king like running around Europe with an elephant. Um... <laughs> Work, you know, and, and and part of it is I think the Khazarians played a very important role brokering a lot of these deals. Khazaria, as well, geographically speaking, it's was, very central
0: at the time, right? That's
1: that's a picture of, of is that Charlemagne? Is that is that a is that a, a drawing of Charlemagne and his elephant? Yeah, <laughs> really? that's funny. Uh, <laughs> um, it's very central. If you look at it, it's like um, it's it's overlapping what are known as the Steps Silk Road. So mm-hmm. the Silk Road went. Had a southern branch through the Muslim world, but it had a northern branch through Russia into Europe uh, from the north.
2: Right. Very
1: important strategic uh, trade route. Many of the north-south uh, Silk Road that went from Khazaria down into Baghdad with corridors through the Christian world too. Now in Khazaria, what we do know from the writings of Al Masudi and Ibn uh, uh, Qurdabe, um, as well as Abu al uh, Istakari, uh, Istakri, these are the three big ones who wrote a lot about this. Um, as as Persian scholars mostly um is that when they converted and I I do think that yeah. the timeline of around 745 750 makes the most sense More considering sense? Okay. what I'm looking at what's going on around them chemistry wise
2: and do they? think role of,
1: uh, sorry yeah because yeah. Yeah, this all like this is where you have the 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 co the the Collaborative work of Jews, Muslims, and Christians at the peak, at the max, at this mm-hmm. moment, it really gets underway. So there is something to do with the choice to to convert um, the, the the courts, at least to to Judaism, but they it was run by a Supreme Court. Do and you so,
0: hmm? did you see anything uh, telling you like why they converted?
1: It seems uh, like it was very, a lot of theories, but yeah, it seems like what I'm seeing is a lot of it's practical in the sense mm-hmm. that things were dangerous for Christians to move in Muslim w- lands and dangerous for Muslims to move in Christian lands. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of hostility still. So even though the elites had sort of a, 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 a common mind on things, right. there was still uh, a lot of hostility subcultures that had a lot of bad blood. So it seems like at the time, at least the Jews had the greatest flexibility of mobility and still being one of the Abrahamic faiths still had a point of trust where it's like, okay, we all come from Abraham. So, we have, like, common agreement that we have common values. Mm-hmm. And so, from my standpoint, it seems like a lot of this was a practical decision, um, as well as a moral one. Because if you still look at the Torah, there's a lot of really good moral values in there around sure. which uh, civilization could could be viable. Um so that's that's what I'm seeing so far.
0: Well, I, I and this is a, again just a you know a note that I and I, I mm. could be way off on this, but it's interesting that you had a, you talked about how prior to them converting that it was very much influenced by Confucius type of worldview. Mm. And I actually people might think this is crazy for me to say, but I actually see a lot of commonality. Um, you know between the, the Confucius uh, belief system was very. Um, you know, strong emphasis on uh, knowledge and uh, yep. kind of like a, a educational value. Yep. Um, and uh, there was, a, and I, I see a lot of uh, also like in respecting elders and the the relationship between, yep. uh, you know, sort of that familial structure and the yep. order of yep. things. I think yep. there were some cultural similarities is really what I'm there alluding
1: were- to. Yeah, yeah, very important. I mean, it's one of the most, and it's it's not super dogmatic either, so it's very hard mm-hmm. to get, like, a, a, a Confucian a Confucian nation to, like, go to war with their neighbors is really hard because it's mm-hmm. not, it's, it's very ethical-based in terms of yep. high sacred value of practice of honoring your, your grandparents and your children. So it's yeah. very, very much focused on that or, and less so on the doctrinal, like, differences that's, that often separate us from other religious people who might call god a different thing or use different rituals uh, and I, a lo- it's a okay. lot easier to get those kinds of groups to fight each other over their differences than it is for a more philosophical based Confucian grouping to do that what right. you got there it's a, a chinese girl and a, and a jewish guy getting married
0: yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <Okay. laughs> in turn uh Resonate with more egalitarian attitudes of new generation Chinese embracing emphasis of moral equity found in Judaism. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I think when you're talking about they're less likely to go to battle, I mean, I know one of the primary tenets of uh, the Torah is to question everything, including God like to question the existence, the relationship. Uh, Obviously, you know, uh, the Torah says he he wants to be chosen. Um, You know, he doesn't want you to turn away. And there are many instances where the Jews do turn away and they, you know, they learn the hard way that that wasn't the path for them. But I I think that that's one that is a a very uh, distinctly uh, kind of you know, Jewish principle is to have this questioning, you know, a lot of other religions that you can't question. It's a very dogmatic. So I think that is another similarity as well.
1: No, you're right. You're, you're very right. And that's true. Like, because that's also one of the things that um, often gives Jews uh, a bad, a bad name is because of what's, because there are elements within things like the Talmud, Mm -hmm. um, especially the Babylonian Talmud, which, um, have state very, very morally uh, wrong things within them, it seems. It, I've, I've actually had somebody just recently write to me saying actually that that's mistranslations that look very horrific. but if you look at the honor like the honest translation, it's not it's not what we're told it is from the English. Uh, I've
0: wondered about that. I, I don't yeah. know I don't know the language. Let's, like
1: let's say from what I've seen, I was operating on the hypothesis that these were like honorable translations and, sure. and this is terrible. Terrible mm-hmm. stuff that is, I think, written by satanic rabbis. But the thing yeah. that that the ear of a of a Christian or a Muslim often misses is that in the Jewish world, only the Torah is treated as a sacred text.
0: Yes, um, that you should. I see this all over and over make. again.
1: Yeah, godly. Whereas the 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 Talmud is not like the Bible or the Quran. It's 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 understood by the Jewish world that it is written as opinions of rabbis that are accumulated. That are worth studying and thinking about and trying to refute. So it's a different type of thing than we get in Sunday school or in, in Islamic Sunday school, or so. I, I don't know what they have there. But right. it's different. Where here we're told to like more memorize, think about why things are are the way they are, and, and be obedient, which has a value to it if you're doing it well. Sure. But it, but in the in the but it's not. It could also be very easily abused, as we've seen. You know, so many wars and evil and, and inquisitions done in Christian, in Christ's name too. So it's not always. You know, it depends also on the. Uh, the leadership, uh, the, the teachers of, of the children, it, same thing for the rabbis. If you have an, an evil rabbi or a, a misguided rabbi, he'll he'll guide his his students to learn the wrong lessons. Yeah. But they're often encouraged, as you just said, to try to refute the texts of these various rabbinical opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, to think for themselves, have platonic dialogues with yeah. the argument and see if the argument holds up or not. Uh, same thing for Confucius. So the, part of the meritocracy is that if you look at the way that the meritocratic system was was it has evolved, which mm-hmm. is why Benjamin Franklin wanted America to be a meritocracy, yep. not a simple like absolute dem- uh, democracy, which is basically right. mob rule, but a meritocracy right. <laughs> where people who have power, earn the right, qualify themselves to have power. And he was studying the system of China at the time of the 1750s, 60s, when he was trying to think, formulate the basis of the republic. And uh, they're not multiple choice answers. Generally, they're not simply one correct answer. They're very much like often focused on um, create a poem with these preconditions based on this theme that has a a moral lesson. Do it. And, you know, you have time time to do it in the test. Come up with this problem. If you have this scenario of this battle of the ancient kingdom of the Tang Dynasty with its with its neighbor with the, how would you organize an alliance? You know, so they come up with these. It's more problem solving oriented to get. I to went. To, the, I wish I went to that school. Yeah, me too. So <laughs> <laughs> no, it, so it forces you to think outside the box and not just get the right answer. It's more question oriented. Um, so in that yeah. sense, the Jewish matrix, which is more philosophical, and the, the Confucian do have those parallels. You're totally right. So yeah. that probably also was informed I, by their decision or informed their decision to, to change. The yeah.
0: I'm not. I'm not saying that was the reason, but it it doesn't seem so strange to me now. I didn't no, have no. that you know piece of context, so no, I think knowing that, it's, yeah, I do think. It, I didn't I either. Think I mean, I didn't really better. think about it so much
1: until you asked me, and now we're just talking. And so it's sort of like becoming more of an idea in my mind. Um,
0: yeah. I think but, people often, you know, people do look so much at um, because they're trying to make things into a linear context and yeah. a linear construct, I should say. And I, I think that they're looking so hard to you know, find these very specific answers that they lose the context of humanity and human nature. And -hmm. the reality is that, yes, we have practical needs and practical functions, but part of that is also that we have to deal within the realms of our, our understanding, what we can fathom, what we can perceive and, you know, and navigate through that. So for us to And by us, I just mean as humans, if we are going to switch to something for a pragmatic person, a purpose, we still need to be able to know how to navigate that. And Mm -hmm. I think culture plays a huge role in that. You're not going to just, I mean, for somebody to, if you just think about like somebody learning a new language, right? A lot of times if somebody is going to leave their country uh, and go take a job somewhere else, they oftentimes are trying to figure out, like, what would I be able to immerse myself in? You know, what might not be so foreign to me? And that might be different for each person. It might seem, you know, as an outsider, you'd be like, why'd you go there? That's like the complete opposite of where you're from. But for that person, they may have some uh, previous references or uh, familiarities that made it easier to immerse. So I, it's a long winded tangent and I apologize, but I just think it's really important for people to understand because I think people look at things in a vacuum and that's just not how things exist. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, rules.
1: yeah. Good. 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 No, it's good little lessons of just reasoning. Cause it's not so much what you think, but how you think that, that matters the most. It's like, yeah, the, the, the world is run by, and it's, it's such an important shift mentally to recognize that it is, ideas that are metaphysical about reality that are that are at the causal nexus of what we see in the material world on a timeline as events in you know separated they don't all happen at once so that's why I have a timeline and you can place them that way and model it but it's not the model it's not the material expression of the event that can give you the insight into what caused that war that peace treaty that renaissance that dark age that none of none of the material expression can account for the cause the cause is located in the in the higher realm of ideas about God, creation, natural law, the nature of mind, why we are purpose, things like that, that are um, what Augustine calls the the higher the higher domain of reality. We've got two realities, right? The becoming and the being. As as Augustine studied Plato and Plato, that's a big part of all of his dialogues. the 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 reality of being and the reality of becoming. They both coexist, and yeah. it's like you don't have it's not an either or thing but but the being like why do beehives you know organize them so why do bees organize their beehives around rhombic dodeca dodecahedral that look like hexagons when you cut them or snowflakes why do they organize at a certain temperature in the form of hexagons you know and why does the golden section animate living processes and right yeah. why are the planetary distances where they are and not some other set of arbitrary arrangements they are in a harmonic set of arrangements so all of these things it's like we it's not perfect hexagons. It's not perfect golden sections in the in the investigatable domain, right. but we can know mentally through the sphere of mind how right. a hexagon is created. Right? We can know how the golden mm-hmm. section is created from the side of a, a, a rectangle with side one, the other side of two. You could take the, the 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 hypotenuse square root of five, and you could you could subtract one from the square root of five, and you have now a relationship. Of right. one to one minus square root of five, or, or inversely to play with that to get the golden section, which has animated the, the thinking or planning of the Parthenon, of of uh various architectural beauties, as well as the idea of the, the pyramids themselves, the internal mm. architecture of the, the pyramid of, of Giza.
2: Right. Um
1: very much shaped by an understanding of of the of the golden section, which is recognized as a as a divine proportion for a reason, right. not that it has like mystical it's not a mystical gateway to the demiurge to give us powers over the many which is maybe the way like albert pike might treat it right
0: uh, <laughs> or the way that people like to interpret uh da vinci uh yeah, right? yeah exactly yeah. saying that he was the proto rus crucian yeah
1: yeah and it's what they've done to the kazarians too right they're like the kazarians are the proto uh, Khazarian Mafia Rothschild bankers that took over the, the noble kings of Christian Europe were taken over by these Jewish moneylenders and, and they've got this overly simplistic explanation yeah. and they don't see that no, these noble Christian kingdoms that you think of as being the victims of the Khazarian Mafia that took somehow over um, were themselves like Gnostic, occult synthetic, fake Christian yes. sects that were utilizing the power of the nations of Christian Europe to do things like the Crusades overseen by Templars or Gnostic Manichaeans that were doing devil Baphomet worship in like underground caverns and shit, um, and Mithraic like, you know, uh, rites of initiation with the mysteries that they were still doing. It's just now that they're like, so that's what was going on. And during that time, if you look at what influence the Jews had during much of that time, yeah. it was shit like jews and it was not jews were were getting massacred lynch mob mm-hmm. in, in uh, the first crusade the second crusade the third crusade each one had hundreds of thousands of jews getting their asses killed no i shouldn't speak in, in this language but getting killed christian yeah. mobs were whipped up into a frenzy to yeah. to just like kill mo- muslims and jews alike as they wanted to take back the holy land uh jews weren't allowed to by 945 venice was the first to put in the create the word ghetto to say, if you want to be, if you're a Jew, you have to live in these allocated zones, have a little symbol I on your arm. I thought that was so
0: fascinating in... that they came from Venice. I felt very uh, stupid that I didn't know that. <laughs>
1: yeah, Venice was <laughs> the worst. And, and they, you know, the Venetian oligarchy, that was the heirs of the Roman nobility, the high uh, patrician families of the Western Roman empire. Most of them went and migrated to Venice to reconstitute their empire and they're the ones who passed in 945 the first anti-jewish laws, saying if you're a jew you can't have a weapon you can't work in a guild you can't work as a craftsman you can only do money lending or selling used cloth and that really and you can only live in these little specific ghetto places and uh and then that was replicated in italy and germany and england had their uh there is aziz laws replicate on based on what venice had done so all across the world, to, the Jews and were of like
0: in New York so, City on the Lower East Side.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in all these cases, the Jews were were pigeonholed into these very very specific limited uh, roles, out of which, yes, yeah, some. If you want to survive, you you had to be you know um, very strong stomached and 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 be the house slave, right? And work your way up, and you would be given an, a little little nobility if you did it well. And your, fed, your kids would be guaranteed. So it created this weird slavish mentality that endured for a long time. Yeah. And again, what was what was missed out is that this is not the Khazarians taking over. Your Khazar got wiped out. We don't know all the details because again, the history books have been really um, rewritten as the Jewish right. yeah diasporas. Right. Yeah. So what we do know is that Khazaria had a supreme court when they converted
2: right. to
1: Jew. Under they, there's sort of an apocryphal tale. I, I don't know if it's how true it is, but when they converted, they say it's King Bulan. Uh-huh.
2: Um
1: They didn't force everybody to become Jewish because in the Supreme uh-huh. Court that dictated the laws of the land of Khazaria,
2: uh-huh.
1: it was um, as who was it who said this? It was Abu al Istakri who wrote about how you had two Jews, two Muslims, two Christians, and one pagan who were all judges on the Supreme Court that even the king of Khazaria had to abide by. So they tried to keep it like an ecumenical approach. They also didn't have their own military. They had a deal worked out with um, uh, uh, Harun Mm al-Rashid to provide a Muslim army who lived in Khazaria. 5,000 Muslim soldiers, maybe it was 10,000, but a lot. And Mm -hmm. that was the Khazarian army. It was not a Jewish army. It was they had an agreement and that helped also avoid the danger of a of Jewish Muslim wars was that the Muslims would say, OK, if anybody attacks you, we will defend you. You will pay our, our, our bills, obviously. Right. But, will, but the only condition that this contract breaks down is in any condition where you end up getting in a war with a Muslim country, in which point yeah. we turn on you. And so that was a really creative way of bridging the divide to to conquer tactics for a very long time. And the, yeah. and the Muslims were good at at, at military affairs. And, and um, under under I'll uh, um, I'm forgetting now. I'm missing out my my um, I think it was Al Mamun. Maybe it was earlier. Um,
0: was that, that was left? In, what mm-hmm. what what was this uh, military uh, strategic knowledge uh, from?
1: Probably the earlier culture, maybe it was the Sassanids. I'm not really too sure about yeah. the dynamics of the pre Muslim communities yeah. living in Persia and, and Baghdad, but I, I, I don't really know the details. Just the Persian
0: but, Empire and having to defend that is kind of. Fair. Yeah,
1: it's like you're always at guard. But they helped China as well survive an early Tang Dynasty rebellion, a civil war called the Anshu Rebellion in six uh, uh, 750 something or uh, I'm forgetting my name. 755. Mm-hmm. And the way that they, this this general of the New Tang Dynasty, um, uh, Lushan, he um, he wanted to be the emperor. And, and he created, he had a whole contingent of mercenaries that he built up under his own army. And mm-hmm. uh, he almost succeeded. And it was only because the actual Tang Dynasty emperor sent a request to the Abbasid dynasty saying, help <laughs> us out. That the Abbasids were like, okay, they sent a Muslim army to go and fight with China to put down the civil war and they were granted land and like 10,000 uh, Muslims ended up living in China and they were given all this, that's why there's Muslims in west china it's because they were given mm-hmm. the land as a thank you for right. helping save china so that's where that comes from and so you have this interesting thing with the again the silk road revival is the the the, the thing that's giving vitality and lifeblood and creative space to have intercourse with your fellow your 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 neighbors yeah that's right. a picture of the very very complicated it was a complex war 763 that was it
0: okay
1: um yeah it, there's some good uh, youtube videos that go through this in like 20 minutes uh the dynamics oh, wow. of the war and stuff it's it's people can google that but um yeah so you know you you had this 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 dynamic um that coexisted with so again peace processes war avoidance Massive mm-hmm. Renaissance yeah. movements, new architecture in all these different domains, increased longevity, leaping over limits to growth, coexisting in all of the domains. Mm-hmm. And these go, I, I look at things as, as a historian, my, my organizing principle is oligarchicals, oligarchical systems have sort of non-negotiable invariance about them that will always demand certain things of which what I just mentioned, that little mini list, it runs totally contrary to any type of organizational principle of the oligarchy that wants to keep populations down, stupid, underdeveloped, you know, uh, fighting each other. These are constants, okay? Um, so for, for sure. me, that's where I'm like, okay, so Khazaria seems to have been playing and the, and the Jewish uh, influence seems to have been overall a very positive thing during that whole period. And the wiping out of all memory of Khazaria, the creating of a new set of mythologies around the Jewish evil thing, um all is done has been done and is being revived especially since Arthur Chrysler who was an organizing force with the CIA that did the Congress for Cultural Freedom that was Arthur Chrysler he yeah. was the first one who revived the Khazarian story in the 20th century that and, uh, go yeah, on, sorry go on yeah right, right into the uh, protocols of zion story that also the oligarchy created with their theosophical sort of occult networks in Russia they built up the whole hate the Jews again, you know, they're behind all of the overthrows of monar- these noble monarchies that are Christian. It's really the Jews that hate the Christian. So they oversimplified things to the point of stupid. And a lot of monarchs and a lot of leaders like Hitler and, Mus- and well, maybe Mussolini less, but Hitler and as Arthur Chrysler, uh, the czar, stupid Tsar czar Nicholas II and many leaders in Germany all believed in the protocols of Zion story and for, you know, Henry Ford believed it. And, and they played right into, they all forgot to think about the actual British Empire that the American founding fathers understood very well. And right. these mystery cults that Ben Franklin infiltrated with the hellfire club. Cause what's the hellfire club? The hellfire club is a Lucidian mystery cult of Mithra doing under like rituals in underground caverns under, um, like, like in Benedictine monasteries that had been bought and paid for by what became the entire governing class of the British empire in the 18th century. They were all hellfire club yeah. and they were doing in their Mithraeum, in underground rituals and caverns weird hallucinating mysteries to create new little god elite god wannabe elites um and other orgiastic weird shit um that dominated the british empire that's what a young ben franklin at 23 was assigned to like infiltrate and get information about when for for cotton mather and and the people who had organized him as part of the resistance against this evil thing in america and uh and people forget this is what the American founding fathers understood. These cults very well. That's how they were able to it carry is. out their fight against it. And yeah. uh, we just lost it. We we forgot it, our, our memories.
0: Yeah. Uh, Washington used proof of a conspiracy to warn the American public. Uh, Jefferson used code of the Illuminati. They, they were very aware of, of these cults and what was going on. And they they did really try to warn people. And it's so weird to see how... Uh, perverted and twisted the narrative is now because now it's oh well they were the evildoers uh, who were part of it they were literally I'm not saying they were perfect they were obviously they were human you know um, and I and they 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 did their share of things that you know I'm sure none of us were proud of but to they they literally were warning and very overtly so it's just it's very bizarre to see how so much of that's been twisted now. So.
1: Yep. yup. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I when you were talking about also this, uh, you know, like during the Khazarian uh, Empire before it was wiped out, and how uh, the Jewish influence seemed to be a very positive thing at that time, it does seem like we you know, we have you've been talking about the uh, Babylonian Talmud prior to that, and. Uh, I am not familiar enough I but I do know I agree with you that it's, it's you know interpretation this is my understanding is interpretations from various rabbis and they, it it does look like kind of satanic uh type of a influence <laughs> um it doesn't look like a jewish uh, torah well, reading there,
1: there's there's uh there's like hundreds I don't know there's like 5 or 600 rabbis or something who have written yeah. their opinions on on how to interpret uh the torah and the pentateuch and mm-hmm. stuff and give their opinions on like and, you know, if you read – I haven't read it all. It's big. I, yeah, I, I've read I've read the excerpts that you've probably read that are horrific. Right, like, right. <laughs> well, like get circ-
0: circulating social media, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: It's not all bad because a lot of it's, like, good life lessons here and there. And there's, like, sure. a lot of good rabbis. But then they spliced in some really nasty – it seems to me, at least, that they yeah. spliced in some really bad eggs into sure. the, uh, the montage. And
0: some inversions, uh, right? Distortions of what you would – yeah. Yeah,
1: it's, like, okay to kill a uh, uh, – uh, yeah, gentile you know kid or something like that again that might be wrong that might i i still have to do the digging because i have to admit that i didn't i didn't question the translations yeah. into english that i was given well, that was the That's first the, thing
0: i questioned but i don't yeah. i don't read the language so yeah i don't, yeah. Like Hebrew. I don't know part.
1: i i gotta get somebody who's honest who can do an honest translation translation and tell me is this is this is horrific is as it appears right. to me that it is um, the, I don't know. The
0: fact that it's coming out of Babylon, I think, also, I think, is a, a valid consideration. So it does sound like there are several um, kind of mystifications of Judaism, as with all yeah. of these religions, right? There's the uh, Kabbalah and the, mm. um, you know, the, I think the Babylonian Talmud, but I just don't know why they put so much weight on the Talmud because, as you said, it's typically the Torah that people who are actually practicing Jews would be following. And yeah. I, I always use the analogy, it would be like, uh, you know, looking at a thread on Twitter and deciding that this is representative of all, it's like a thread of, let's say, you know, doctors and deciding that this speaks for all doctors. It's yes. kind of ludicrous, you know, it's a conversation. Yeah. yeah. But.
1: No, it's, it's true. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh... It's again its projection. We're we're mm-hmm. taking oh, there we go. Famous uh is that Pierre Bruegel's uh Babylon? What's yeah, Bruegel. I'm not sure. But yeah, it's that's that's the Babylonian uh, the tower, right? Um yeah, we're we're projecting our own experience as from a Christian uh matrix or a Muslim matrix onto what we think the other is, and it's like it's not that. They don't treat the 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 Talmud that way. And and the Kabbalah is serious, like that's that's yeah. something which is very easy to uh, to make evil because it's all about yeah. again like secret teachings that God told Moses. As soon as you're you're into that, it, yeah. it opens up the door for all sorts of bad stuff, and also the very idea of thinking that it's okay to take the Torah and ignore all of the sentences and paragraphs and words and think that that's just the exoteric uh, form, like outward messaging for the stupid people who are too dumb to know the, the higher dark truths because they're high, the, the reality is it's all just symbols like because every Jewish letter could be a number right they just string it all together like one giant hum with different intonations of each symbol that you can accompany with like a trance like sort of atmosphere that you put in a dark chamber with a candle and you can go into like a self-induced hypnotic trance a bit of incense helping you out maybe overseen by some Higher initiates who guide you a little bit along your your depatterning, self-depatterning exercise, um, giving you prompts along the way, and you come out of this process thinking you're now an initiated Kabbalist, and and you're just like effectively like a, a, a Leary, a Timothy Leary, uh, you know, mind melted uh, occultist who is yeah. worshiping like the devil, and you don't even you have no fucking ability to think for yourself anymore. Right. Um, so, yeah, they, they, this is this is a problem. That's definitely yes. a problem. Totally. Yeah. All
0: right, so I, I derailed you. We'll, we'll go back. So we were, I think, uh, in the late 700s, and yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, I th- you know we, we hammered quite a bit. I, I think overall, the important thing to keep in mind for people is that, you know, they're, they're, the oligarchy has worked hard. They finally – because when did they get their – we don't know the details of why and what caused the specifics of Kazaria – to finally get eliminated. We know that there was conflicts yeah. with Kiev and Rus, the early Kiev Rus. We don't know the dynamics. Again, all of this stuff has been so distorted and what accounts I have found are so tainted yeah. by gossipiness and speculation yeah. grounded by no evidence. I can't I can't treat it seriously. It's like mm-hmm. there's all sorts of things floating around. All we do know is that the oligarchy hated the effects of what was done with this ecumenical alliance of Christian, Muslim, Jewish, uh uh, confucian buddhist even worlds that were working together Mm -hmm. um and we know that the crusades they finally got them we know that actually charlemagne his Mm -hmm. kid his eldest son who was also named pepin after his uh, grandfather um was assigned the role of destroying venice in like 805 you know like he actually sent um a contingent down they actually had an overthrow a coup in Venice with an early doge. Venice was still brand new, hadn't gotten all like it's evil walking uh, legs on yet. And uh, there was a a doge who did a bit of a coup, sent out a diplomatic envoy to Charlemagne saying, okay, let's have an alliance. We'll be obedient to you. Um, He didn't last long. He was, he had his head cut off like really quickly, but you know, Pepin, uh, the son of Charlemagne was sent down and uh, to, to take control of of this, this problem uh, zone and uh and he ended up getting sabotaged it seems from within he made a few victories had to got super sick possibly poisoned in the lagoons of venice right before he could like win the day he died so charlemagne lost his his favorite son and heir um venice lived once again to fight another day they always interfaced with about with the ultra montanist papacy um that they were always influencing through these occult networks as well as the worst elements of byzantium that all, also had their own problem cults that interfaced through the same families always the same thing um you had though some weird sufi orders as well built up that were interfacing with the templars later on helping their their shenanigans in the middle east yeah. uh who all had their own death cult eschatology this belief in an end times purgative violence that would somehow purge the world of everything bad and that's Pippin of italy yeah, that's him. And yeah, and that's that was the guy assigned to to take control of Venice. Um, So, you know, Venice finally was successful at, at bankrolling and creating their, their first crusade with the help of the papacy. That then established the Templar kingdom or what became the Templar run kingdom of Jerusalem. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 1098 or so. Then mm-hmm. the Templars were created 20 years later by a Benedictine uh, radical named Bernard de Clairvaux. Mm-hmm. He appears to have been a Mithraic cultist, and mm-hmm. so they created his own his own thing. He wrote the charter for the Templars, as this male-only mercenary Theban cult of male buggery, that would you know go off and and you know make it work. They would work with other orders like the the Hospitallers and the Knights. What became the Knights of the Order of Saint John of Jerusalem and another branch that became the Knights of Malta. But both them all they all basically had the same thing
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: going on. And uh, and yeah, sure. world view yeah, same world view. Seems like they were all covers for mystery religions, and mm-hmm. and all of the the everybody went into dark ages. They, you know, it brought out the worst in everybody. The Christians became like what we think of today as like medieval feudal Christians. Were you know were like whipping themselves, to, you know, walking through village to village during the dark ages and doing dancing manias. Drink, you know, eating probably like bad bread that had wheat blight, making them go into you know, psychedelic, uh, fin- you know, fanaticism during the 14th century. It was like a a, a festival of cults and insanity. And Inquisition took over, um, all because of. And you know, the Muslim world also went went kind of dark. Um, Venice was playing all sides. Venice was growing and growing out of the out of the Dark Ages. The Venetian power was expanding. They had their operatives in the new Ottoman Empire that they were using as well to take control of other Christian territories. You had the Mongols as well as sort of like. You know, 13th century ISIS groupings that were also being fed information and logistical support by Venice, um, were, you know, taking over all of Venice's rivals around the world. The Mongols were just super useful at, a, at this imposing dark age wherever they went, like ISIS was, you know, just destroy the temples, destroy the schools, you know, kill the kids.
0: I can't help but wonder. I know ISIS is an, an acronym, but I can't help but wonder if it was uh, named after
1: me too. I wonder yeah. as
0: well. <laughs> I'm not the only one. Good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> probably, probably connected. So I'll no, have to say, yeah, that's, so that's it. I mean, you know, I'm, it, there's, there's this really rich history and, uh, and every time the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims have, have gotten their heads out of their asses, they've worked together and yeah. uh, done wonderful things together um, sure. in opposition to oligarchical forces. And every time we, uh, we act, we acted, um, in, a, in a in a lower mental way, <laughs> we, right? we just fell into profile and did the same thing again and again. It's always mm. very predictable.
0: Yeah. yeah. Right. A predictable mess, which is exactly what they're they're aiming at. So there are a couple of things I wanted to address. One, Kessler. Um, so that was one of my first introductions as well, because people kept mm. saying, we have to read The 13 Tribe, 13 Tribe. And mm. I kept feeling like I was so baffled by why people thought this was a great resource, because I didn't see any evidence in that entire book. It was a great story. And by great story, I mean compelling, uh, like in terms of narrative storytelling, but there was nothing in there that was quantifiable at all. No, Uh, it's super
1: apolitical. Like it's apolitical in the sense that everything I just said, he doesn't care about conspiracies, oligarchical systems. It's like he's almost trying to obfuscate and obscure the actual study of oligarchical systems and what they hate. It's like he's trying to avoid that, even though he knows better. He's so smart and such a part of an occult operation with the with the CIA and Congress for Cultural Freedom that he knows exact he knows better than to have That's the wise. opinions that he is promoting. So no, he's
0: so yeah. he either knows better or he's been programmed. Otherwise,
1: <laughs> one of those two. But yeah, knows, no, no, but he knows better. He knows better because he's. I've read a few of his works and uh, okay. he's got a really uh, important work called The Sleepwalkers.
0: Oh, um, I saw the, that. I I haven't read it but I did see that come up. I studied
1: Kepler. That spent years studying Kepler's original writings with the LaRouche organization um, from 2007 to 2000. I still read Kepler. But um, having read Kepler, I know that Kepler is one of the most powerful minds of the world who Mm. did such a revolution on every level. He created modern science in many ways. Mm. Um, through his discovery of the harmonic relationships of the planets around the sun. It was not just a theory, he proved it. And it was a Pythagorean mm-hmm. hypothesis that was first put into writing in the Timaeus dialogue that Kepler cites as what inspired his entire life was proving if this harmony above as below is true to reason, not the way the Rosicrucians and the Gnostics say it is because they just use it as language as above, so as below. But Well, they, they use
0: just, it as a spell, literally. They're casting spells. spell,
1: exactly. Yeah. They deny. They think of reason as being evil, anyway. So they think the only yep. way to know God is through some direct experience of becoming God or recognizing that you are God.
2: Mm-hmm. So the
1: Gnostic wants you, you to to have knowledge with no reason. That's the worst. Maybe there's variants of good Gnostics that might be out there that that just agree that that logical deductive inductive reasoning is wrong is is, is not going to get you to the solution, and right. you need something better. In that sense, that's like a Kepler or a Plato, but. Mm-hmm. But they understand that the creative leap, which is nonlinear, is still intelligible. It's it's not Mm -hmm. unintelligible. And Mm -hmm. so Kepler is making his mind very transparent in his writings. And he wants people to go through all of his mistakes, how he generated, how he zeroed in on the paradoxes, where he pressed the model of what was known mathematically onto reality, which was experimentally observable. And where did they break down right where did the where did the the two systems fail where were the cracks that's the paradoxes he's very transparent on that because he want, he knows that that's the the food of all creativity is in the paradoxes and then you can it's like a, a, a dissonance that you can then willfully choose to resolve in a harmony by generating a new idea that reconciles the the, the paradox by and also that it all involves examining your core assumptions, which is what he also does. He's like
2: mm-hmm.
1: the, the, the problem of all existent standard models that existed of astronomy in his day was the, um, un, the blind assumptions, the axioms that there were these mathematical points called equants or epicycles mm-hmm. around which things apparently would move in, in an equal um, speed, which didn't exist. He's like, there's no reason to believe that such things exist. They're just useful mathematically you make your calculations easier, but mm-hmm. why would God make a universe with these things? It's there's no reason for that. Um mm-hmm. Why would God make things make make orbits of planets around perfect circles? There's no reason why He wouldn't make them ellipses or something. Um, so He would explore the core axioms and would be liberated thus through this method in making a real fr- discovery that He made with His three planetary laws and and much more beyond that. Which and He His direct enemies in His harmonies of the world are people like Robert Flood. That book right there, the full unabridged five subbooks within that one book published in 1618 is gorgeous. And at the very last chapter, he's declaring war on Robert, Robert Flood, who is the architect of Rosicrucianism, his main nemesis, who's trying to also write books called Harmonies of the World, but doing it from this occult standpoint where there's no reason permitted. It's all about worshiping astrology and sex magic and alchemy it's 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 very different um so kepler now having read kursler kursler in his sleepwalkers yeah i could see has read all of kepler he's read his mysterium cosmographic he's read his new astronomy he's read his his harmonies of the Worlds. he's read his work on the six-sided snowflake he's read all of that wow but then he consciously and systematically derails you because it's it's written for people who don't want to read kepler and they want somebody to regurgitate and give them the right answers and so he then says so the way kepler did it his magic sort of uh formula was sleepwalking he would go into a trance and he would sleepwalk into a discovery he'd go to bed and he'd wake up and he that's not true that's absolutely a total systemic lie but he maintains it so because he's read kepler i know that he was brought the only people allowed on that level to be policy shapers who have like read the Forbidden Texts. It right. was worked for banned, by the way, on the, uh, the Forbidden Books of that came out of the uh, the um, Council of Trent. You had the Appendix of Forbidden Books, of which most of Plato and Kepler were all on the Forbidden Books list.
0: I bet the Timaeus
1: is on that list. Oh, for sure. They never teach... I, I was a philosophy major. You don't read the Timaeus. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. No. <laughs> oh, I
0: mean,
1: yeah. And it's hard to read Timaeus, too, because it's like... Yeah. It's it's complex metaphysics, but it's reasonable and you could like work it through and have a, you could actually do the geometry that he's taking you through and figure out what were the Phrygian and Dorian uh, mo- modes of music as he's taking you through and what are the proportions of the one third to the three fourths to the four fifths to the five, um, five sixths, and, and you could take the one half of the string in the whole and you could just test out the consonances and there's sure. problems, but overall it's reasonable. And then look at then the relationships of the planetary distances around the sun. And you can start seeing uh, harmony. Um, And that's what Kepler does throughout his life. And as a consequence of him being very, very committed to this um, pathway, he generates universal laws that are even to this very day amongst the few laws that are still applicable in the quantum domain. So it means that he didn't just come up with an opinion. He Mm -hmm. discovered something like that's an opinion that carries the weight of universality that has power. When you act according to those ideas that are true, that the universe will then resonate to give you as a human acting mm-hmm. in obedience willfully to that universal law, greater power to discover and to support more people at a higher quality of life and make more discoveries and all of these things that the oligarchy says we should not be allowed to do right,
0: this question is it, it may seem a little unrelated but i don't think it is because i mm. think so much of why the Khazarian question is even a question has to do with uh controlled managed dialectics mm. uh, but when you're describing kepler and i really am not very familiar with kepler with the exception of maybe like a little bit of reading in high school um but uh, elementary school i think actually in science but mm. um yeah, but definitely have not read him in depth. I will look into him now, though. That's fascinating. But it sounds like he was really, uh, he was codifying a code of uh, dialectical theory that has been mystified by people like Kant, Ficka, and Hegel. Am I wrong? or
1: No, you're right. No, yeah. Kant, Kant's. And especially Hegel. I didn't read Fichte, but uh, yeah, they... Fichte
0: influenced Hegel very strongly. Yeah,
1: and- I've, I've heard. I've never really done my deep dives. But yeah, I'm, I'm Hegel, amongst his earliest assignments in 1801, when he was assigned to uh, work at... Was it Jena? You know, I think it was at Jena. But it might have been good, again. I always mix them up. Um, but one of his first assignments... Was to prove why Kepler's hypothesis that there was a harmonic ordering of the planets, and why there would be a thus a, a discovered oh. planet or something discovered between um, Mars and Jupiter. There's this big gap, right? Everything mm-hmm. kind of falls into a harmonic ordering, except this weird gap between Mars and Jupiter, which Kepler had postulated must is is a harmonic zone where there should be at some point discovered something there. And at right. the time, they had only recently, in 1799, first t- picked up notice, or 1800, of um, what became discovered later on as the orbit of Ceres. Other huh. Years. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Hegel's uh, dissertation of orbit. Wow. And, and Kepler. So,
1: yeah, and, and so Gauss, Carl Friedrich Gauss, was a Keplerian, brilliant 23-year-old genius, um, who was able to by 1802 he discovered because no no all of the they it was observed that there was what appeared to be a planet that didn't abide by the other trage- known trajectories but people lost it after like a few weeks they couldn't track it down anymore it disappeared because it wasn't right. a planet right it, as it per- turned out it was it was it was a, an orbit uh an, an asteroid but asteroid. part of what we now know of is this belt this asteroid belt where there's thousands of these things but there's, there's some really big ones almost right. almost pluto size and uh and so all of the best minds of Europe were all like trying to figure out where is this thing? Where is it going to be next? Nobody could figure it out. Months went by and nobody figured it out. And then finally Gauss using a Keplerian method, um, which he kind of obscured because it was getting politically hot to just be so overtly Keplerian in those days. You could get your ass killed and people did die uh, in the scientific world for openly trying to defend Kepler. There's this guy, uh, Abel. Um, who's a brilliant young twenty-something year old who were, who's making some incredible discoveries um, in physical geometries using Kepler's method. Who was very very brilliant, and he he got killed. He died. Mozart died as well. Who was part of the, um, the the this 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 Pythagorean Platonic network of of revolutionaries who mm-hmm. were trying to create a like essentially Augustine's City of God. That's what they were all trying to basically do: is create a situation whereby a world of moral reason could be brought into being with human beings finally making the shift to our more mature selves and out of the the, the age of empire, of this, like, mm-hmm. like entire, you know, parasite age. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but that would require beauty. It would require beauty in arts and science mm-hmm. as well, excelling together to shape the, the temper the hearts of the of the citizens to be able to use their, their instruments of judgment well. It, it, that's the only way a democracy could ever work. So it was culture, the, the fight was cultural. And so Gauss discovered this thing but Hegel was assigned, <laughs> right before Gauss made the discovery, he wrote this, what became an embarrassing paper, to basically try to turn everybody's minds off the trail to say there could be nothing there, it's all arbitrary, go back to sleep. And he he ended up getting rewarded for his his paper anyway, and getting to become the head of you know philosophy and history in, in Jena, right. and, and then Göttingen, and then Berlin. Um, and he shaped all the young Hegelians out of which the Young Europe movement was emerging. Um, of I, do, yeah.
0: I do think he was very much uh, pushed to the forefront, uh, intentionally yeah. so. And
2: yeah. he had
0: very close ties to a lot of, like, you know, Vicka, he was very influenced with and had relationship, was a very high-level Freemason. And then Vyshoppe, mm-hmm. uh, he had he was... Vyshoppe, actually, very much praised him and said how he was, you know, great thinker of the time and mm. just the person to lead. Uh, I, I think that they, I think they saw that, how powerful it was as a tool. I think that's really, um, you know, because the casting the spell as above, so below. And uh, I actually, I interviewed somebody pretty recently who works in, uh, he's in the Senate and he was saying that their braver angels as an offshoot of the Freemasons had actually come to them and taught them a, uh, a dialectical psychological warfare, and who, who, what, are, what
1: are they called? Braver angels.
0: Yeah, <laughs> braver angels. And they came to do like a seminar, and he said he was pretty horrified, but that it went really right over most of his peers' heads, and they weren't concerned at all. But they were literally teaching them like Hegelian dialectical warfare tactics, using uh, mm. psychological dialectics to manipulate mm. people and craft mm. narratives, and mm. yeah. On stuff. Yeah, it's um, stuff but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of scary but i i remember you yeah. had mentioned was it abladard and he focused on the, he focused on dialectics as well i'm very curious about this whole trajectory of direct dialectics well, because it does seem like there's so many of the just when you're talking about things like like the religious warfare i think mm-hmm. the reality is that Throughout the history of time, human beings have coexisted. People have had different belief systems and have managed to get along. When you talk to a human being one-on-one, your first question is not like, you know, are you Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, Jewish? Like, that's not your first question. Usually... You can have a bond and a relationship. People even, as we saw, marry people of other faiths. So, yeah. right, right? <laughs> You're talking, right? Other faiths, other ethnicities, other <laughs>
1: Yeah, right.
0: Um, yeah. Um, So, I, but then we're led to believe that, no, we have to be constantly fighting each other, that you can only exist in, you know, some sort of a... Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. Like a Hobbesian nightmare, I guess is yeah. uh, the only reality that can possibly be, and that does seem to be a construct that can only work if they create uh, these, uh, essentially these false dialectics, these, uh, you know, uh, managed uh, pol- polarizing narratives.
1: No, you're right. Um, well, that's the thing. I, I, I think the thing about dialogue is always better than than uh just shouting at somebody dial uh didactically saying what you should do it's better to have a, a discussion so that you can um get to understand the person who might disagree with you on things right and and uh, come to either discover that your own thought was wrong by having that conversation and you're like oh right. the thing i felt so sure about i turns out this person had better reasoning that i hadn't considered okay i will i will thus modify my thoughts or right. if if I really um, have thought about my my hypothesis i have a discussion with somebody who disagrees with me and you come out of it more certain that you were correct than you were going into the conversation but it's not good to just be in a vacuum sitting you know in your own head in your bedroom thinking away <laughs> in your life and not testing out your thoughts so right. dialectics obviously preferable than just talking at people um
2: right. but,
1: the, but but it's what's in your heart right do you care right. about the truth or do you care about being right more than the truth and so i think mm-hmm. with the the false Neoplatonists, a lot of them are mystical, very evil Gnostics who just care about using the appearance of dialectic, but none of the heart matters for them. It's really just using either forms of sophistry where you act, ask rhetorical questions or you act contrived questions where you want to get people to a conclusion without properly having an honest discussion. You, you, you want to even avoid things that are brought into the conversation, which derail you from the outcome you want to have. At which point you might call yourself a Platonist, but you're 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 not, you know. Right. And I think Hegel is very much a manipulator who didn't believe in the, the immortality of the soul of everybody. He didn't have a love, a true love of people or himself, and so I think he became much more inclined to that esoteric uh, agenda versus uh, Gauss or Lessing or Mendelssohn or, or true Platonists who. I don't even like the term Neoplatonism. It just doesn't it doesn't mean anything anymore. It just means like you're either a Platonist, you're you're using the method honestly, or right. you're right? <laughs> right. You know, uh, yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. That that's interesting. Well, that that might be a whole nother can of worms, but I I think that might be an interesting conversation for us to have to unpack because I I think a lot of people have a you know they they're very attached to one or the other. They either see the Neoplatonists as the good guys or they see uh, you know, Plato is very much, they, they look at the Republic and they see it as the model. They talk about like the philosopher Kings as being, you know, essentially creating what the modern modern day military industrial complex. Um, so, you know, I've yeah. heard a lot of these different competing yeah, theories. True.
1: And I used to think that too, but you know, you read all of Plato and you got to read Plato's works as a totality. And you then, you know, nobody, Nobody should ever start with the Republic, in my view. I, I think that yeah. you you really have to know Plato's method before you can read the Republic and understand his use of irony, his 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 intentions more, because it's all about the intention. Because right. he's exposing what has always been oligarchical, gnostic operations to control us. He's saying right. what you shouldn't ever say publicly, and right. he's doing it in a in an allegorical form in the dialectic uh, mode, yeah. which made it somehow um, palpable, or at least it uh, avoided some of the censors at different moments and became something people could actually chew on, which normally they were never allowed to, people were not allowed to think about that. But he also wrote it for his, his academy, you know, like he's trying to train real viable leaders in his academy, in the real world that is being, you know, that is at war with the, the satanic hordes of, of, you know, Babylon's martial lord of Persia you know he's that are influencing the cult of delphi and these different like mystery cults around isis and osiris and and mithras and all this stuff like they're 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 at war with these these creatures um so he's doing it in a very very effective manner and he's trying to create training manuals to help his students become rigorous challenge his thoughts like look at where where does he go how is it that after reading book 1 of the republic which is a very clear um, manifesto of Socrates yeah. and Plato's value of of justice in opposition to Thrasymachus, who's obviously like a Gorgias, Calicles type of like hedonist, as Hobbesian. You know, good is just goodness is defined as whoever can satisfy their lusts and pleasures and punish their enemies. That's what I define as being the absolute good and thus happiness. And he's okay. annihilated, but yeah. they still don't define what what justice is. So. Yeah how can you get in a like people you're like a, reading it and you're like how is it that i'm agreeing with this manifesto but as i'm reading you're making all of these very interesting points but somehow something is being put in as a trojan horse of assumptions into your argument that is resulting in good things good good agreements good good uh thoughts
2: right somehow
1: building up to a fascist police state where we're throwing babies off a cliff we're born into the wrong family And uh, like it's it's a fascist Spartan state. How did that? How did I? How did I come to that that conclusion? And like, oh well, maybe he consciously placed certain unexamined assumptions about the nature of mankind being the same as a dog you would breed that we didn't properly examine. We just agreed to without thinking about critically if that's right or wrong. Are we the same as you would breed a, a human guardian as you would breed a human? Uh, a, a, a dog guardian? No, mm-hmm. the logic breaks down. We're not the same thing. But you'd only know that if you read every other platonic dialogue.
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs> but if you just read that and no other platonic dialogue, yeah, you wouldn't realize that Plato is challenging you to, to think more about you know your assumptions. Um,
0: you wouldn't also understand his sense of humor and his style.
1: So No, you got to know the style, exactly. And he's funny. He's a funny
0: He is person. really funny, yeah. Uh,
1: so, yeah. And he's real. He's like a real dude in the real world fighting geopolitically against real mystery cults. And, uh, you know, like he's that's, that's Xenophon, like his, his key ally, his most trustworthy ally and leader of the academy is Xenophon, who ends up becoming the advisor to Cyrus the Younger, who has the, the younger brother, of, I think it's Darius or something, but who has the, the claim to the throne of, of Persia. And he gets organized to be the actual philosopher king by Xenophon and a network of other Platonists out of the academy who then work with him to take control, to destroy the mystery cults, to destroy Babylon, take control of Persia and convert it. And stupid Cyrus gets into a, a, a battle in, in, during one of these, these interventions, gets gets killed, even though they win the battle, Cyrus gets killed. So now you've got Xenophon and the 10,000, who are like stuck in the middle of enemy territory, trying to figure out how the hell do we get back to safe country when all of our leaders have all been, they all walk into a trap, got poisoned, dead. Now we got to survive and get, get home safe. <laughs> That's Plato's buddy, you know, like it's not a small deal. Like, so yeah, people have to like look at Plato and, and, and philosophy and look at, well, what were they, they as humans? What was the political reality that they were constantly playing a role in instead of treating them like they're just ivory tower mines on clouds or something, you know?
0: It is so interesting that you bring up, you know, that he's a real world uh, person who is trying to navigate a a very complex geopolitical context. But the difference between, because I think that's very relevant for today, uh, because the difference is today we have, uh, you know, this is like, again, back to the Kazarians, I just think it's such a reductionistic view to think that this is the, you know, I I don't know how to put it, the pin the tail on the donkey, but... um, Mm. Because what they've done is they've crea- created these really intricate webs. And I think the layers of the webs at his time were less uh, developed. They were less intricate. You know, there were smaller webs. But I feel that the veils, because they didn't have the same technology. They didn't have the same, uh, you know, government structures, the military apparatus that we have today. And But yet the danger was that much more intensified in some ways. Because it was face-to-face kind of battle, so uh, you, a lot of your kind of more primal instincts are are going to definitely be heightened, I think. And whereas I think today, you know, people are not. There's so many veils where uh, people don't necessarily have a real sense of. They have a false sense of what the danger is. You know, they're spoon-fed narratives, and they're mm-hmm. they're watching things on you know the media. They're they're being uh, fed in echo chambers through algorithms on social media. But, you know, really, they're doing that from the safety of their home while they're eating ice cream. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, making well, you a third kind of <laughs> scenario. It's true. But like, it's,
1: it's true. I mean, well, this is the thing. Like the, the, the modern age has kind of brought us all into this discussion, which normally only the few would be concerned with this category of idea sets that we are here discussing yeah. with other people. We're not born into like high end, you know, blue blood families. We oh. we didn't have some, some, some coup d'etat that put us into a position of privilege or, you know, so, but we're having this conversation. Um, yeah, due to the advent of modern tech, which has resulted in this giant information like bonanza, yeah.
2: um,
1: Luckily, I think we, we've been working on trying to cultivate uh, a sense of, of discrimination because like, how do you, how do you extract value from this infinite plethora of facts and misinfo yeah. are some sort of like trying to hold on to something universal yeah. as a standard around which we can like, you know, cut through and, and advance on the path towards better understanding. Um uh, But yeah, you're right. Like this is a brand new phase of human civilization. Um which which has changed the dynamics quite a bit and brought people into a place where they could be a part of something that has formerly been reserved for um, a small class of elites for good or for evil like yeah. you know it's it's been the minority of the minority that that's made changes for good or for bad now all of a sudden we could all play a more at least conscious role like because the good guys like the ben franklin's or the i'll say the good guys i, I don't want to i know people will always accuse me of being like manichaean good and be, but it's like yeah i believe in good and evil so yeah sure good guys People who are and who are not perfect—they're not angels—but right. again, nuance, right? Pro humanity, uh, yeah. Pro humanity. <laughs> people who are disruptive of oligarchical systems of death calls. Um, right. Yeah. They will print emotion things that will involve right. the masses, but the masses didn't necessarily have the level of of epistemological development and thus understanding required to themselves initiate that right. which they are positively participating in as amplifiers. Doesn't yeah. make their 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 contributions bad in any way. It makes it still valuable. But um, I think with the the, the barrier the,
0: entry was much higher. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we can all now take a much more interesting role in things. But yeah. again, it, uh, it 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 does require this question of discernment and just patience mm-hmm. and wisdom that or love for wisdom at least. I don't want to sound condescending because again, you could sound condescending, right? Like because right. we obviously have wisdom and have like these special I, and knowledge love- that. Uh, <laughs> and
0: love for wisdom is not worship of wisdom. I just wanted to clarify yeah. that as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's the pursuit yeah. of the care of it. Yeah. Um, so, and, and it's tough with the, 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 the military industrial psyops of, of social yeah. media that were created through the, you know, uh, the military industrial complex. They constantly wanted to shorten our concentration span with yep. pop culture, meme micro videos. That's what it the Arthur Kursler played a role in bringing online with the two cultures. From the CC, the Congress for Cultural Freedom was, you know, three, four, five-minute little blip, blip music tied into hyper-sophisticated music that nobody could like for the elites, and then the, the the banal music of repetitive rhythms that are just catchy but are hypnotic for the masses. Um, so the elites are allowed to have a long attention span, but they're not lot, allowed to have a heart that's tied to love of truth or anything. Whereas the masses are allowed to have a heart. But they don't. They're not allowed to have a mind that could be guided by the heart in any way that would allow for uh, qualitative discoveries to happen. So they create these these two false cultures of, of that that are equally out of control or out of whack with themselves, and thus more easy to manipulate. And you know we got to overcome that. So I think in that sense, reading a Platonic dialogue, like forcing ourselves to like, we 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 missed out on that qualitative education we deserve to have as humans. We weren't given it because, you know, we're born into an oligarchical system. So it's good to just take the time to say, okay, I'm going to be my own teacher and create yeah. like Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin wrote something called his autobiography,
2: mm-hmm.
1: very short, easily accessible, can be read in two days, easy. And he's giving you a guide to self-manage and self-discipline qualitatively yourself at going through his own personal experience of wanting to pursue moral improvement, how he did it for himself, so that and he's giving you practical guide steps of how to do it yourselves. And I'm talking to all of the audience who might be listening. And it's like, take the time, you know, organize your week with and block out spaces where you're going to just read, you're not going to go on social media, you're not going to, and you're just going to read a platonic dialogue and think about it. And you're going to write notes about what you think about. And you're going to read St. Augustine, you're going to sit down and take notes about what you're thinking about with St. Augustine. And you're going to read a bad guy right that that is very sophisticated read a little bit of kant maybe not the whole freaking 8000 word thing but read some selections <laughs> and get a sense of it you'll you know um so then from there we'll find and listen to a bit of some better music we know that the oligarchy doesn't mean you, you you should stop listening to music you like but be aware it's not what you thought it was as you said you know what kind of music do you like i like cia music okay but <laughs> You're, so you could laugh at you could laugh at yourself a little bit, you know, still enjoy the rhythm, but you you don't you you won't think okay this is somehow better than Mozart's Requiem. Go right. and listen to Mozart's Requiem, you know, right. balance it out a little bit, and, and give yourself that that higher thing that the oligarchy has been afraid of uh, taking off. And the more yeah. you do that, the more you can re- return back to your political opinions about this or that, and your role at you know in a process with a little bit more refinement and, uh, it'll work. It'll work. It'll, it'll, it'll bear results at least. That's all I know.
0: And at least potentially the, uh, the possibilities for seeing shades of gray and having some yeah. nuance in your perspective, but I wanted to address yeah. when you're talking about the, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the short attention span, uh, with, uh, with lots of heart and passion, mm-hmm. uh, versus the ability to have, a you know, very creative kind of independent thought and, uh, a longer duration, but no heart. I think it's so interesting because isn't that kind of how they uh, frame the left and right? uh, Yeah, Yeah, right? Politically, they talk about, oh, well, what was, I think it was Churchill saying that if you're under 30 and you're, uh, you know, on the right, then you have no, you have no heart. And if you're over 30 and you're on the left, you have no brain. Ah, (laughs) Uh, There it is, right? really
2: funny. (laughs) Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah that was I thought of that immediately, <laughs> it's definitely part of their um yeah. their contrived uh, systems yeah. of uh, polarization. So a, a yeah. couple of more things I wanted to so sure. Kessler, so you were talking about the protocols of Zion and how those were uh, artificially constructed. What? How did that even come about? There are people who I, I, I'm just so surprised, like really think that that's the key to. All the answers, uh, they give way too much credence to it. Um, so, yeah, I would love if you could tell us a little bit about the genesis of the Protocol design and how that differs from the Priory of Sion, because I know a lot of people have conflated the two.
1: Oh, okay. Well, the Priory right. of Sion uh, seems to have been a fo- early 14th century um, Gnostic knighthood that may or may not have grown out of uh the the templars i'm not really too sure if there was a direct connection because but the timing was interesting that around the same time the templars were abolished and burnt you know at the stake was when they went underground and you know some of them some of the orders continued on like the Hospitallers. they they were the ones who ran the banking anyway but the the priory of zion seems to or Zion seems to have been created around that time and people might know of it because they might have read or listened to some works of modern fiction like uh dan brown's da vinci code or uh, (laughs) holy blood holy grail is another popularizer of this thing um it it, part of it was tied to um a a gnostic mystery cult Mm -hmm. masquerading as christianity that presumed that jesus not only didn't die on the cross but Mm -hmm. went on to have babies with uh, mary magdalene his sacred whore Uh, as they interpret it because there's this idea that the mother and the whore are like two sides of god that god is both the the liar and the truth teller the whore and the mother the they they try to like force these these opposites together in a very because you could you could resolve opposites in a lawful way or an unlawful way they try to force they're like oh you want to resolve the the contradictions and dualisms sure you can do it through letting your darkness synthesize the good right yeah it's like a a bad resolution of the dialectics yeah so anyway there's like this idea that they promoted that so jesus's bloodline was continued through the babies he had with mary magdalena and um and that the merovingians were told that they are this bloodline that that they're the ones who hated Charlemagne and charles Martel for overthrowing their dynasty um Yeah. The Normans were told, you know, it's actually you guys. too. and a bunch of the the different, you know, uh, pagan families were told at different times, hey, it's you guys. They created like this, this story, the sacred story, um, about them all being the divine heirs of Jesus. And so, a lot of the the leading families of Europe today believe that they are, in varying ways, the heirs of Jesus, especially the the dominant pre- and paris the, the, the house of windsor
2: mm-hmm.
1: um really believes that and thus they have the godly ordained right to control the new kingdom of jerusalem that will be purged of jews and arabs currently living there after some conflagration out of which you know they, they've sort of synthesized their own eschatology eschatology whatever, with uh, their idea of them also being both the christ and the antichrist you know that King Charles's grandchild is going to be the Antichrist, which is why they, you know, they unveiled the kid,
2: uh, Kate Middleton's
1: baby. Remember, they had her dressing as like Rosemary from Rosemary's Baby, the Roman Polanski movie. So I think they've got a little bit of that going on. Um, The Priory of Zion was sort of a a, a sect to protect the bloodlines, sort of interfaces. It's difficult to sort of examine directly, but I'm sort of trying to triangulate on it a little bit. Right, kind of overlaps with some Jesuitical structures. The Jesuits themselves kind of grew out of... That's a long thing. Okay, let's put that aside for a second. Okay, (laughs) so the Protocols of Zion um, was a series of... It was a PSYOP in the Mm -hmm. 1890s in Russia, uh, managed by a new secret policing operation tied to occultists known as the Okhrana. And uh, Sergei Zubatov was the head of the Okhrana, and it was a, a branch of an, an order of Russian elites known as the Holy Brotherhood. And these were the the old feudal overlords and families that wanted to restore the pre um, you know because be, so a lot of this was was done because of Lincoln's system spreading around the world, and so Lincoln had a bunch of allies in Russia
2: okay. who, around
1: Alexander II, the Tsar, the reformer who saw himself as uh, walking sort of in the footsteps of Peter the great. And uh, he freed the serfs. So he had 25 million serfs who were liberated. He forced the reforms of the landowners. And it was about seven or eight months later that Lincoln announced his intention to do the same for the slaves in America. So they, they were both, They both saw eye-to-eye on a lot of things.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And uh, and a lot of the American allies around Lincoln ended up working closely with Alexander II, who also got assassinated by uh, a London-directed anarchist tied to the Okrana. And his son also died by poisoning arsenic, uh, Alexander III, um, who was trying to, in various ways, continue those reforms. And part of the reforms involved um, um, working with a lot of the Jews of Russia, probably there because of the reforms made by Kazari. I, I think that Kursler mm-hmm. might be right on some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were very ghettoized in Russia. Mm-hmm. And so part of this was how to bring in both the traditional values with an acceptance of progress, technological development, things that were of the modern age. That was the big challenge. And uh, so it was working out pretty well though. I mean, under under people like uh, Sergei Vita, was the finance minister of Russia and a great admirer of Lincoln? He became prime minister too. He was overseeing industrialization, infrastructure development, state credit, the Trans Siberian Railway built with Baldwin locomotives from Philadelphia, uh, that were what built the Trans-Siberian modeled on Lincoln's transcontinental railway that was supposed to go mm-hmm. through British Columbia through Alaska into into uh Russia via the Bering Strait. That's why the Russians sold Alaska to the Americans in 1867. Mm-hmm. Was because right. the intention was to extend telegraph wires and rail, um, right. and so a lot of this was the brainchild of this ne- beautiful network of people in around Vita and, and others. Uh, Mendeleev, the scientist, was a part of this, um, overseeing the committee on protective tariffs, applying Lincoln's protective tariff policy to Russia. That's the scientist Mendeleev who discovered the periodic table. That guy. So they're working right. together, and um, and they're working with with Jews. They're they're working to help people. Get into participatory democracy. You know, it's 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 really tough, but it's working pretty fast. And right. Russia's outproducing Britain. They're outproducing a lot of the the empires in uh, in almost every index you could imagine. So it's going pretty good. Right. Um. But Zvita's got to go. He's got to be taken down. And uh, one of the ways that they do this is they work on the ignorance of Ale- of Nicholas II who's married to um, a granddaughter of Victoria. Um, I think he's even himself the cousin of um, the King of England. And um, and he's got biases. He's got big blind spots and he's susceptible to anti-Semitism. And so they cater to that. And that's why this, the protocols came out of Russia first through the Okrana. And the Okrana also has a, a bunch of key, key theosophists with uh, Blavatsky who are working high level uh, as gurus of the elites and they're bringing in uh, to first Zara Nicholas II's wife and then to him. What um, I am totally persuaded is a forgery based on certain texts that had already been written earlier, decades earlier, like the discourses of uh, Machiavelli and Montesquieu, which was a polemic about Masonic conspiracies, but done at the time in France against Napoleon III that were literally taken whole, like, Areas of text were lifted, revamped, infused with um, the booklet of the Jewish order of high commanders um, who are conspiring to take over the world and destroy Christianity. And, and and it obviously participates in truth. That's why it works, because there are Masonic conspiracy theories that involve the use of Jewish bankers and things. That's true. So it's appealing. But right. they promote this because the the original intention is to get across or paint Sergey Vita as a Jewish banker Rothschild Stooge in Russia because he is pr- getting capital and loans for the investment into Russian development through bankers, some of whom are tied to Jewish run banks in Europe. And because of that direct that simple association, independent of how he's using the loans, right they, they're like, look, he's obviously a, a Rothschild Stooge working for the international bolsheviks whatever to so you have to get rid of him and and it works and and nicholas ii through the influence also of his of his flatterers the courtiers who are all like whispering in his ear and they're all occultists doing seances with the the, the dead that he fires vita and as a consequence uh creates a situation where all of vita's reforms they all stop uh russia starts making stupid stupid missteps left and right um Walking into setups like that become the, the 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 Japanese war on Russia that destroys like seventy eight percent of the Russian battleships in nineteen oh
2: four.
1: It radicalizes all the POWs. Like fifty thousand Russians become POWs in Japanese camps that are then the Japanese are are themselves being inflamed as a new warlord civilization by the British and by Jacob Schiff and other bankers who are in the middle of already setting up the Federal Reserve in America. They're doing the same thing to. Amplify the samurai ethos of Japan as the warrior um, superhumans, you know, endowed with special genetics to govern the world and um so, the Japanese Ubermensch. Yeah, mentioned. they got their own, their own Asian variation of the theory of the Nietzschean <laughs> theory, and they they do it and they destroy the Russian military and with the, with those fifty thousand POWs, Jacob Schiff funds with with Warburg and and I think Milner plays a role. Mm-hmm. In providing a lot of revolutionary socialist literature to those POWs who become then the vanguard leaders when they're released and they have all this hostility and bad blood about about Russia, they're they're then released, now radicalized after, God knows, like a year or two in in captivity, only allowed to read (laughs) socialist Mazzini literature. And then they become the Bolshevik leaders of the color revolution in Russia very soon thereafter, which is only unsuccessful because Vita is brought back into play last minute in 1905
2: Mm -hmm. because they're like
1: we're we're fucked like what do we do and he's the only guy who knows how to make deals and make things happen so out of necessity he's brought back into play forced the creation of a duma he's like look you got to make a constitution for the people you don't have a constitution uh and and he makes he organized the constitution the first elected duma he becomes the first prime minister but he's only in there for like a year and uh and it, it does relieve the tension because you do need to have for these these color revolutions you need to have economic despair of the masses uh, you, need, you do need to have that pressure cooker built up yeah a uh, paranoid elite helps a lot if the paranoid elite <laughs> ends up like being afraid of the people they're more inclined to want to crush the people's will and that makes the people thus more inclined to want to rebel uh-huh. so you know this this is done and, and and so um you have the relief of the pressure, and it, thus it takes another 12 years for the, the, the program to finally do what it was supposed to do in 1905. And that finally then topples the Tsar and his family and, and brings about a new thing. Uh, Trotsky is the key guy at the time, very very closely working with a lot of the Fabians, the beatrice Sidney Webb grouping. Victor, mm-hmm. um, he's survived several assassination attempts, but he ends up dying very sad, obviously, watching all of his, his efforts go to shit. Um, but the protocols continue, right? So after they do the job that they were supposed to do in Russia, then they're translated into Britain. Churchill becomes a promoter of them. Uh, Henry Ford becomes a promoter of them in America. The, 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 the Alistair Crowley networks in America who are part of the, the underground occult working with British, uh, German intelligence in world war one become promoters of them in America. Um, they they work on Hitler. Hitler becomes a really big believer and and acts accordingly. So do a lot of the fascists uh, funded by Wall Street back then in London. So it's it is what it is. And and today they're just reviving it again because it gives people a nice satisfying explanation of everything, and with a that appeals to what we want to hate anyway. A lot of a lot of Christians unfortunately kind of have a inborn prejudice to kind of want to hate the Jews. They killed Christ <laughs> after all, didn't they? So of course. Um, so it just kind of fits into uh, some psychological hypnotic spells that have been put there over over generations. Sure. And and, uh, and so it's being we're seeing it everywhere today. Kazaria that, protocols as I am that Jewish bankers conspiracy that, or the Chinese. There's variations that have been spun as well. Sure. Same sort of thing to make, uh, you know, the, the Chinese again the super villain boogeyman that we have to hate and fear like we did during the Cold War when we were good, well behaved sheep afraid of others um so the russians
0: the communists other oh, yeah.
1: commie russians is all the same thing and it's yeah <laughs> it, it, it's
0: it's, yeah. Getting it's getting tiring uh, <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> yeah
1: why can't so, stop
0: <laughs>
2: stop, yeah. stop stop the madness
0: so so yeah. where we are today with this whole uh palestine uh, israel conflict a lot of people seem to want to conflate all these things and wrap it into a nice bow and say that they're all intertwined. Now, obviously some of the, you know, the, the narratives are definitely intertwined and I think they've helped to stoke the tensions that are there. Uh, but I, I'm not so sure that, uh, that, that it's a hundred percent accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah. <laughs> so, well, so what, what are your thoughts on the role that, uh, any of these, you know, the, the Kazarians, the, uh, protocol designs and, uh, is there any role in what's happening today um are they you know is it do you think that there are intentional kind of like psychological warfare operations going on to try and uh, integrate them into the current uh milieu in order to heighten tensions and to create a lot of these uh i i think reactionaries and uh revolutionaries uh because i think part of the asymmetrical warfare tactic that I see is to create revolutionaries, particularly uh, in the West. Like I I, I see it, you know, all through the universities here. Um, You know, we have like a lot of these, they they look very reminiscent to me of the uh, BLM type of rallies. Now we have them for the pro Palestine. Uh, Yeah. So it just seems like I, people have said to me, like, you know, this is so simple. And I'm like, really? They're like, well, the Balfour decoration, it's an, uh, you know, it's an unlawful inhabitation. I'm like, really? So, so how far should we go back? Should the Palestinians give it back to the Romans? Should America (laughs) give land back to the Native Americans? You know, I I, I, mean, where do we want to go? Like, how do we make this super simple? And uh, yeah, clarify Um, that.
1: Yeah, like it's, it's, the 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 concept of the the mandate of heaven is just a really important concept um that we would already talked about earlier on yeah i think people need to really think about that and read some mencius because Mm -hmm. it's like part of the idea is that a, a a law is not intrinsically good or bad it's the context that defines often whether a particular action policy wise is going to be a good or a bad thing so it's like is is there, is a revolution good or bad well it's like depends on the context mm-hmm. it's like is 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 it being done with the intention and the understanding of principles that are to make a better outcome yeah. or is it being done to destroy a good a good uh that's already happening and undermine the good to make a bad outcome it's all about intention Um, but intention is metaphysical it requires that we see with our mind's eye using reason and triangulate with reason of things we know as we you know have a a dialectic relationship with our own mind talking and discussing with itself examining our assumptions we have to have that kind of mobility of the mind as we see with the mind and use the the senses of, of our seeing and our hearing and other senses as, as tools. They're Mm -hmm. they're useful. They're not bad, but they're tools. They're not the source of the knowledge. So purpose design, these are all effects of intention, Mm -hmm. um, natural law. So to the degree that we're like, okay, well, what was the context in which the revolution was occurring? What were the intentions of the players? We could say, the American revolution had the mandate of heaven. Um, the I'm for the idea of like, like people have attacked me because I'm a Canadian writer. I've written books on Canadian history. Sure. But I'm, um, but they've attacked me for being an American stooge, just shill because I, in, in my volume two on the untold history of Canada, I'm sub- I am, I am making the claim and volume one, but I am making the claim that it were, it were better had the Canadians accepted Ben Franklin's challenge to become part of the other 13 colonies at the Constitutional Convention instead of saying, we're going to skip this one out and stay loyal to the British. Nice. So I'm saying that we, it would have actually have been better if we had done that. And a new, a new, yeah, and just like I'm, I also say that uh, Lincoln's allies in Canada, it would have been better had they been successful at either creating either an independent Republic of Canada or an integration of Canada like British Columbia into Lincoln's America after the Civil War than if we had stayed loyal to the British Empire but oh, I we didn't yeah that's that's volume that, some of that story is in volume three over there right. and uh and so does that mean i'm for canada being taken over by us corporations under nafta today no not at all because <laughs> america lost the mandate of america
0: it, being taken over by uh, the yeah <laughs> right.
1: america lost yeah it, it lost its own sovereignty it's been taken over and so because it has been colonized by these supranational entities now it's lost its moral viability of doing things that might've been appropriate in the past when it still had more independence. Yeah. And now, now the same action could be said to be uh, evil or bad. So right. it's all about the context. Yeah. And so the same thing um, I would say for, okay, well, how did, how did we actually start this off? Like, what Oh,
0: it? I was asking you about the current, like oh. right. and yeah, Israel, Palestine conflict. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: So it's like, you know, in the, in the case of today you could say, okay, well, yeah, Israel had a, an unfortunately dishonest origin story mm-hmm. um based on yep. british geopolitical planning to yep. get effects that were geopolitical in nature and a lot of jews both secular and religious jews were manipulated yep. uh along the way some of them be- became part of the organized crime syndicates under like merrill Lansky and the Bronfman's, and and others became part of the the Gnostic Kabbalist sects of Rabbi Cook, who worked with Jabotinsky and had a view, like here, let me just read to you, uh, who did the British select to be the first Ashkenaz rabbi of British Mandate Palestine and Jerusalem? It was Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. Now, I got a quote from this guy, from his, um, he wrote a book called uh, The Orot in the 30s. And he writes saying, the truth concerning land is revealed in Kabbalah. This is the guy who's supposed to represent the, the religious Jews right oh. Jewish mysticism Kabbalah militates for life in the land of Israel rationalistic approaches to Judaism place no special value on the land of Israel I have to do it in a bit of a, a Jewish dialect right <laughs> um, so yeah the, 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 the rationalistic approaches of the the, the non the non Kabbalistic Judaism plays no special value on the land per se whereas he he understands better because he's part of the esoteric true higher knowledge. So in wars, he says, national characters crystallize. Israel, as the universal reflection of mankind, benefits thereby from wars. We benefit from wars. The heels of Messiah fall upon world conflagration. At the hour of the downfall of Western civilization, Israel is called upon to fulfill its divine mission by providing the spiritual basis for a new world order. And this this psychopaths, Doctrines become the, the bedrock of the Merkaz Harav yeshivas that produce all of the illegal settler um, figures who then grow out of this thing in the 60s, 70s. A lot of the, the, the people who are processed in his yeshivas take power after the Seven Days War, which was an inside job um, in, in 1967. And then again, the Yom Kippur And it was War.
0: admittedly an inside job, right? Like an, they admittedly
1: own. an inside job. This is not a speculation. It's totally, right. you can take this to the bank. Um and so this was a coup where it it does this mean a coup against what? What did they what were they if all Zionists are all bad, why did they have to kill various labor Zionists who were against Rabbi Cook and Jabotinsky, who were Mm -hmm. like not good? You could say that they're not angels, they did bad things. They they believed that they were even superior than the Arabs. But they had to kill a bunch of these guys, they had to overthrow them because they were still trying to do things that involved economic development. With the idea okay. that we can coexist in prosperity with our Arab neighbors, even if we think we have, a, even if we have a subliminal superiority complex, even with that, if you think you can actually build a situation of economic cooperation, um, that'll that'll create a future you can work with.
2: Yes.
1: Um, like like Augustine's making his argument of the doctrine of witness. It's like, does he sound like he's anti-Semitic? Yeah. Did it save millions of Jewish lives? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> did avoid wars? Yeah. So uh, it's sort of the same thing. And, and so this two-state solution that, that you know, like even now, uh, today, as of yesterday, the, the BRICS have gone up to 10 countries. But these are not just little countries. These are like Egypt, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, Iran, join now with like, you know, Brazil, South, South Africa, or India, China, uh, Russia. Like, that's a big deal. These are strategic zones representing ancient civilizational forces. These are not like little nations. Right. Civil- some of them go back 5,000 years. Yes. They're really not enthusiastic about just canceling their civilizational dynamics. They're not enthusiastic about that. I so, can't imagine why they would be. <laughs> you know, and they keep on emphasizing uh, this idea of the two-state solution. Now, right. people... I understand why one would be very cynical about that looking at the destructive evil of innocent lives killed by these zionist fanatics who think a little bit too much like certain germans that we saw do a lot of damage in the 30s and 40s there's there's a little bit there's a lot of that going on and so it's it's heart-wrenching to see this but it's like none of these eurasian countries made that problem they didn't kill yitzhak rabin and arafat yitzhak rabin and arafat got killed got assassinated after they they were you know shaking hands for the oslo accords to establish the two-state solution in the 90s the the whole idea that made their lives dangerous and why they had to be killed both of them Mm
2: -hmm. was
1: because it was tied to economic development with water desalination roads rail that would involve getting people who had generations of hostility built up to work together for the benefit of their kids and as soon as you do those sorts of things. That's why the World Bank had to have their emergency meeting in 1995 and say, okay, no, all of the requests by Arafat and, y- and Rabin to allow for $200 million, or I think it was even more, to go towards infrastructure building, they had to block it and say, no, you're only allowed to use it for uh, debt repayments, nothing else. So they 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 put, they they put they sabotaged what was needed to give vitality or meaning to that type of two-state solution at the same time as they were creating Hamas out of the Muslim Brotherhood and ensuring that Hamas not... Yasser Arafat's PLO would be the representative of the people, and, and that Hamas coming from the Muslim Brotherhood was tied to a bunch of billionaires who were set up in Qatar and and you know being funded and supported by the American and, and Israeli military. Yeah. And Muslim Brotherhood itself was the deep it is the deep state of Egypt. It's the deep state of every of the Arab countries. It's the, it's tied to the Muslim Brotherhood, which was created by British British Primus yeah. operations. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so like that's the thing. If you if you want to have any chance of Avoiding what could become billions of dead people on the world by a consequence of certain decisions made by fanatics who believe in Rabbi Cook, um, you know, and, and the whole Greater Israel, New Babylon thing. You, I mean, you got to restore that discussion that that I, I I follow what the Saudis have been trying to do with what uh, El Sisi is trying to do, what the leaders of the UAE are trying to do. That that's the only way that it will could work. It can't work in any other way to force economic development, of a long-term, multi-generational perspective, and uh, and anything short of that, it's what you're gonna just you want Israel to just disappear? Well, what's that gonna look like? You want you want the Palestinians to all just disappear? Well, okay, these are two recipes for forever wars. Uh, yeah. It's not gonna you can't do that smoothly. Uh, that'll be a bloodbath in either direction. So, and you're gonna create multi-generational hostility of more fanatics. That are going to want to have a revenge anyway. Right. It's partially why Egypt can't accept a lot of the Palestinians who have been victimized and abused so much in in Gaza into Egypt because a big faction would be part of the Muslim Brotherhood paramilitary operations that would then start sending attacks into Israel from Egypt, giving Israel the excuse it wants to go and invade Egypt, just like they would do in Saudi Arabia if they were allowed into Saudi Arabia they would then become the faction that would then start launching attacks against Israel from Saudi Arabia, giving Israel the excuse it wants thinking that it's, it's got the back of the, of NATO to go and and create. It's what it believes to be the greater Israel borders that involve 30% of Saudi Arabia, most of it of Egypt, all the way to uh, the Suez canal. That should be the, that should be the, the, the Jewish property and, and, and Syria and Syria and Iraq. That's all Jewish property and Lebanon Jewish property. So they you know it's a tough spot it's a really hard spot for for the egyptians and the syria and the saudis to be in right now yeah. um but they need they need the economic development that's the only way to force that that and and yeah i don't know I, it, it, yeah it's it's complicated anyone it's says it's is, easy is out to lunch <laughs> I, that that's yeah. that's
0: my my reaction i'm like how are people making this like so simple I'm like, if they are, those people need to step up and solve all the world's problems. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah sure. the <laughs> They hard. got it all
0: figured out, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so, I think we could take a lesson from history, though, because the uh, that alliance with having the uh, Muslim army, right, in hmm. the, I, I think, because yeah, I, Jewish kingdom yeah exactly, I think, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily what they do, but some sort of strategic kind of alliance where it behooves each other to be at peace. Yeah, um, and they they have a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. They both benefit from that, and then they can put all the you know personal and uh, vengeful dis- differences aside for the benefit of posterity, because. Yeah. You know, their their survival depends upon it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So something I don't have the answer, but something along those lines seems more rational and reasonable to be discussing than this whole. uh, We want genocide on either side. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, I guess I can look through. I've kept you a very long time. I apologize. This oh, was fascinating. Um, but I will look through, see if there were any comments, any questions. Um, and uh, I did say I would do that. So let me just take a look. What? Unru- check the rumble. OK, I think there were some on the Twitter as well. But uh, so. For anybody who is still watching, if they had a question, if they want to rewrite it, because I might miss it, then uh, okay. Yeah, someone asked who took uh, Germany down twice, ran by who, why. Uh, and it sounds like what they're doing to the US now. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's true. Yeah. No, I mean, Germany, um, I, I wrote a whole book series called The Clash of the Two Americas. Mm-hmm. on uh, on a lot of this stuff uh, yeah. Germany's, Germany's role or Prussia's role and uh, or at least a, a faction of very high level qualified Prussians or, who helped Washington in, in the American war of revolution uh, the American revolution um, there's a there's a strong bond between Russia and America uh, sorry I said Russian sorry Prussian but between German true. culture the Germans and the Americans going back a long time and and, yeah, when you look at those who are trying to thwart the League of Nations agenda in, in the early 20s between Warren Harding and uh, Walter von Rathenau and the Friedrich List Society and, and the, the, the Russian patriots at the time, who were all working together, to um, a lot of them got killed. Mm-hmm. That's, um, yeah, there's there's a very similar oligarchical agency that that questioner is correct, Similar similar causality.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, there was also oh, someone said Plato was a Mason. I I don't think the Masons were around then. Um, no, no <laughs> but uh, that was just funny it. to me. I just saw am like I think we've got our timelines a bit mixed up, but yes. uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So and then someone asked about Frankism, but I'm not sure when they were referring to because they're Frankism referring to later. That's like 1600, So
1: yeah, that that appears to be a a synthetic. Kabbalistic cults uh, yeah. like the sabbatans to yeah. just typical sociopathic, yes, satanic, Kabbalistic cults which had political reasons for being created, possibly overlapping with some Jesuit operations. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't give it more value in the causal mechanisms of the machinery of history than, than it's than it deserves. Yeah. But it's a, it's a useful initiating cult of crazy crazy bastards who will be used <laughs> to do bad things yes
0: well i think one thing we can learn from it though is that uh, uh this is why the uh, uh cia and the MK ultra uh studies were so fixated on creating and exacerbating dark triad personality disorders because uh, <sighs> megalomaniacs are really good assets And yeah, uh, yeah, I think both the Seventeens and Frank, you know, pretending to be the false messiah. uh, You'd have to be a megalomaniac to even carry out such a (laughs) story. So
2: yeah,
0: yeah, so I think that's probably the biggest lesson we should learn from that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I I think I'm I'm not really seeing. There's just a lot of comments, but I will get a screen. Anybody wants to support me and help me do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, please do. please I just I can't because I, I just I see out of one eye and I don't see well. It's like I'd be staring into the screen the whole time trying to talk to you. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, but yeah, if you have anything else you want to add, this was fascinating. I'm so grateful for all the work you do. And I, I just love that you like really do bring a nuanced perspective. And you actually you look at history for what it is, which is uh, it's a study of people. I mean, I, yeah. somehow people, like, it's like they want to play chess uh, with history, you know, <laughs> instead of recognizing we're dealing with natural people. And when when you're dealing with human beings, there's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of situational pressures. There's, yeah. you know, various levers of power. There's context, you know, which you kept bringing up. And you really bring the context to that. So I, I'm very grateful because I think oh, it's cool. really sorely lacking in our current day. So.
1: Oh, thank you, Courtney. That's, that's really nice of you. Right. You know, I, I try, um, I guess, yeah, Shakespeare, you know, like I, 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 had the good fortune early on of when I was looking for, I mentioned at the beginning, I picked up a David Icke book, a David Icke mm-hmm. book, and I tried to make sense or start my mental mapping and it, it, it didn't quite satisfy what I was looking for, but it gave me a bit of a starting point, I guess. Sure. Um, but early on, I was fortunate to start, um, reading Plato I, mm-hmm. I And I liked the, what was the method, the method of thinking was really, it was right. less importance on the right answer and right. more importance on developing a method of asking potent questions and self-examining my assumptions. That was like what I really yeah. was hungry for. And then very quickly after starting this process, I, I stumbled on the works of Lyndon LaRouche, who oh, uh, yeah. I would honestly say has been reading through some of his deeper uh exposés and studies and philosophical texts have been what i have personally taken the most out of as far as qualitative uh value
0: can i ask you a question about that just because a lot of people criticize uh, the veracity or say that he might have been you know kind of a a disempo agent but what are your thoughts on any of that
1: no i like him a lot i uh I had volunteered with his organization for about a decade, between 2006 and 2017.
0: Okay, yeah, and uh, I yeah. I've found him to be very useful as a resource, but I've heard oh, yeah. I've heard people say that so.
1: Well, yeah, of course. Uh, No, I haven't seen any evidence that that backs up. That doesn't stand up to my actual evidence of what I've seen him say and do as well as a personality who's been running for office and advising governments. Like this guy had an international approach uh, policy that was very, very much. um, I, I think it scared the hell. I think he really did keep a lot of high level oligarchs up at night. Um, trying to keep up with him. Um because maybe wasn't... that's
0: where the narrative came from. <laughs> yeah,
1: so he was in prison too, you know, like they gave yeah. him as an old man, they gave him like hard labor in the uh, maximum security prison, almost killed him. So I, you don't do that for just anybody. Um, you gotta not in this world. Um, yeah. But I do think if people just also his EIR, his executive intelligence review yeah. weekly magazine had some over the years since it was started in 1974. Some yeah. of the highest quality research and studies in deep history and geopolitics uh, emerged yeah. out of that thing. It's still a great resource.
0: Yeah. So That's where that right. I think that was... the ADL was a, a British yeah, yeah. intelligence operation. Yeah, and yeah. Intelligence <laughs> in <my laughs> birth. yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so anyway, no, it's uh, I, I just, you know, sit down. Uh, think for, you know, make your own decisions. Read a few selected texts. The, the Power of Metaphor is a good one, but there's a bunch. You know, Science of Christian Economy is a good book that's okay. yeah, a picture of him yelling at uh, some event. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Any, anyway, just take notes. Think for Think about it. Um, I, I, like I said, for me, it was high value. And um, overall, if people want to dig a little bit more, I would encourage people to go to Canadianpatriot.org org, And uh, you can typically find my books on the clash of the two Americas or the untold history of Canada or the, just published a new thing on science, uh, Science Unshackled, uh which which just came out like a couple of weeks ago. Mm. All all of that's pretty available either on Amazon or you know, send me an email, I'll send you a PDF if, if people can't afford a, a copy. Times are tough, I get it. Yeah. So there, there's there's a lot of homework and, and hopefully hopefully coming out of this process we can we can navigate through the storm because twenty twenty four is is gonna be wild. I mean it's
0: do you have any more, thoughts on what, what they're going to to do?
1: No, I, I got thoughts, but I but unfortunately I got to I g I gotta I gotta make all a right. point for, we'll, we'll, five o'clock
0: we'll reconvene.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> we'll
0: reconvene. <laughs> we all yeah. right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, we'll definitely post links to all of your sites and uh books and stuff. So thank you. And Sweet. definitely yeah, I, I always enjoy our conversation. So I look forward to the next time.
1: Me too. All right, bye Courtney.